This is Unfiltered, episode 264 for January 10th, 2018. I guess uh, Sloppy Steve brought him into the White House quite a bit, and it was one of those things. That's why Sloppy Steve is now looking for a job. The president is also responding to suggestions in the book that even some of his own top advisors consider him dumb and crazy. The president tweeting, quote, Throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. Calling himself, quote, a genius and a very stable genius at that. Oh, wait, we've passed those. Hey, we're back. Yes, it's Unfiltered Time, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show about the news you shouldn't be watching. Happy Unfiltered Day, because I think this is an Unfiltered Day. We can celebrate. We're back. Yeah. Hide all the patrons out there. Howdy. Howdy to you, Chris. Good to are be you, back. Are you feeling okay? Super. Um, I still have a, actually still have the cough. I got to go. Yeah. But no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm not contagious anymore. No more open mouth kissing. Yeah, the Unfiltered show. Actually, we were going to be back a week ago, but uh, I got sick. I got really sick, which always happens. Like really, really sick? Yeah. Like really sick? Super, like like a, a fever over 100 for more than three days. Okay. And there's no collusion. <laughs> no collusion at all. No okay. collusion. Just Everybody gotta, knows that. Yeah. The okay. only collusion. It's been proven. Is the kids. It's been the proven. kids colluded to get dad sick is what happened. You know uh, what? That's, that's why I won't have kids because it, they just get you sick. The th- people don't tell you that it's a real thing when you when you end up having kids. Uh, but when, when you own your own business, it's really extra challenging, especially because the holidays, I work, I do I do about three shows a day for the last couple of weeks of December. Which is brutal. Oh, yeah. It makes me wish I had a coke habit just to get through it. You know what? What, what business do you own, by the way? Um, Jupiter Broadcasting. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, hey, uh, welcome back. Man. We, uh, but we're back now. I, I, yeah, the fever has passed, and uh, we're going to start out with cyber as we always do. Then I want to update you on Russia and the Russian investigation, and then for the unfiltered audience, so you don't have to. I have read the Fire and Fury book. Wait. You read the whole thing, or did you do audio? By Michael Wolf. Oh, 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 I always do the audio. Okay. I always so, do the audio. So, you, side, side discussion, uh, dis- discussion for a moment. Because sometimes I can use that to pull clips for yeah. the show. No, no, no. I'm not dogging that at all. But side, side, side sidebar, you consider reading a book even if you've heard it. Listen to it. Well, I um, yeah, I do. Okay. I consider it at least I do too. I'm on. I like, use it yeah. as shorthand to say that I've processed the information in that book. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because I know people that say that doesn't count. You actually have to read the text and not have it read to you. Well, what's great uh, about audiobooks is you can take like down time codes, and so I make notes as I listen to a book. So for me, it's extremely valuable because I can go back to that book and I can see my notes and my time code notes. So you ever done the? Uh, I think it's called Audio Sync, where you actually mm-hmm. have the text, I do that all the and time, then, and then you can mark and you know. Yep. I love that. Do that all the time. Yeah. So uh, I crammed that book because it came out early, and I wanted to have I wanted to have gotten through it for the show. And so we're going to talk about Fire and Fury. We're going to play some clips around that, and then we're going to introduce a new segment, producer Matt's favorite segment of the week, and we'll wrap it all up with a high note. And then we have a huge overtime, which living up to the overtime tradition, we'll cover actually in additional detail some of the stuff we get into today. All right. Big show, Chase. Big, big, big show. Really? Big show? Let's get into the cyber. ASL. 
this is something that we've been following since uh, near the beginning of this show. Comey really sort of started nailing it hard, and the new FBI director is hitting it all over again. They need access to your phones, guys. We face an enormous and increasing number of cases that rely heavily, if not almost exclusively, on electronic evidence. This is the director of the FBI. Oh, That's not a shock to people in this room. But we also face a situation where we're increasingly unable to access that evidence despite lawful authority to do so. Let me just give you some numbers to put some meat on the bones of that problem. In fiscal year 2017, we were unable to access the content of 7,775 devices using appropriate and available technical tools, even though even though we had the lawful authority to do so. Being unable to access nearly 7,800 devices in a single year is a major public safety issue. That's, just to give you a frame of reference, that's more than half of all the devices we attempted to access in that time frame. And that's just at the FBI. That's not even counting a lot of devices sought by other law enforcement agencies our state and local counterparts, and our foreign counterparts. And I've read a lot of the chatter out there in the news the on chatter. this. But let me be clear. On the, the FBI web. supports information security. We support strong encryption. But Only information if they security. have the keys, right? They support it as mm-hmm. long as they have the keys. 7,775 electronic devices in 2017. I so, mean, you exchange, say, phone with car, or you exchange phone with your, you know, a, a digital wall. I mean, you know, it's like, at some point, we've already sh- – well, actually, not at some point. We've already proven that they can't be trusted with tools. Yeah. yeah I mean, look at WannaCry. WannaCry was made possible because of NSA malware. Right. And yeah. so WannaCry exploits tools that our government sat on. There is a lot of zero-day exploits that have come out over the last three years that uh, it was revealed that, oh, yeah, the NSA knew about that. They mm-hmm. knew about that. But, of course, WannaCry is not the fault of a out-of-control cyber policy by the U.S. government – no, no, WannaCry is the fault of North Korea, obviously. After careful investigation, the United States is publicly attributing the massive WannaCry cyber attack to North Korea. We do not make this allegation lightly. We do so with evidence, and we do so with partners. The thing is, is that a lot of industry professionals have really kind of balked at this. They kind of just shaken their head and said, this is obviously political. The evidence is weak. Whenever we do this attribution... It's always the flavor of the month bad guy. Sometimes when we started this show, 100% of the time it was China. For a short period of time, it was the ICE. Remember when ISIL? Right, ISIS. I think you mean Daesh. Daesh. Remember when they had a cyber division? Yeah. Oh, and and don't forget, we had that nondescript building in Russia. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, then then it became the Russians. Right, yep. And the Um, APKs being siloed. Yeah, now now it's North Korea. And it's North Korea for everything. And it's... We're just blazingly obvious about it. And to me, it's a little odd that now the administration is saying, oh, yeah, we have hard evidence, but then they dispute other cyber evidence in regards to other types of things, you know, you know, cyber activity, hacking, uh, influencings, whatever you the want to DNC call it. The DNC hack, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, Boy, that's a great point. You, you can't – either you take the evidence – from all these cyber attacks, especially if they're coming from the same agencies, or you can't like pick and choose, and that's the part that bugs me. If you're going to go for evidence, the truth angle here, 
You got to be consistent with the message. I would also just maybe, if you want to say consistent, say stay consistent. Just blame everything on Russia, <laughs> right? It just Fair makes enough. it just makes our job easier. Oh well, yeah, then we can actually just call the segment cyber by Russia. What's but what's always funny about attributing massive cyber attacks to North Korea? Remember the the interview? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and that big hack uh, against Sony Pictures, which by anybody, anybody, go look at, go watch TechSnap episodes from that time period. If you just, and maybe you could do a site search. Uh, anybody that's worked in IT knows that that was an insider leak because they knew the full Windows UNC share paths to like documents and stuff, you know. Right. Yeah. Whack, whack, backslash, backslash, Windows server name, backslash, share name, backslash, folder name, backslash, document.xls. Like they knew people had full knowledge of the entire like network shares, right. drive, like the, the, how how do you know like some of these things? You, because you you worked there. Yeah. And it was an insider leak. Oh yeah. But then it got blamed on Kim Jong Kim Jong's cyber army, and the same uh, army that uses VLC player to play videos. Right. And, and then at other times, like <laughs> that, like their technology is mockingly out of date. Yeah. You like you hear from people that go there that they're just way behind. Well, you you've seen the some of the inside documentaries like Vice has done where you know you see the technology that they're running there. It's straight out of 1985, 19 you know mid 90s. I mean mm-hmm. the kind of sophistication that's required. At least, unless it's being really well hidden, I mean, we're just not seeing it. That's so. That is the proposal: is that it's that in the upper echelons of the government, in the in the elite, the people that are pampered in the government, that's where this elite cyber capability exists. And and the assumption that they're asking you to believe is that you can have a nation that is culturally a decade behind in technology, but yet still have a thriving hacker. Segment, yeah, yeah, which is fucking impossible. <laughs> that's not that's not how it works, right? Uh, and so it just, I just never buy North Korea as this huge cyber boogeyman. I much more prefer China or Russia because everybody knows the Chinese are smart and everybody knows that Russians are scary. They have right. an act. They have a thick accent. Yeah, yeah, Maybe. and Iranians are young, so those are always good too. <sighs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But not ISIS anymore. No, because, not ISIL. No, 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 Daesh. So let's talk about Russia for a moment. Speaking, <laughs> Speaking of big of. scary, big scary. You know, while we were off the air, I think my favorite moment in the Russia investigation, because it's just, it's like, where does this end? Where? So if you fart in the general direction of a Russian, you get investigated these days. And so uh, that's what happened to Jill Stein. She farted in the general direction of a Russian, and uh, Jill Stein was brought in for investigation. I think it's very important to let the truth get out. Do you remember this candidate? Uh, she she green, ran for president? Yeah. No, I'm the, just kidding. The green candidate? Yeah, you remember <laughs> I remember, that? yeah. Former Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein has been drug into the Russia investigation. And get the facts on the table. Uh, that photograph that circulated, a factless photograph, um, really created the presumption of guilt because of the story that got falsely attached to it. And that story was that my campaign was accepting support, uh, contributions of some sort from the Kremlin, which is absolutely false. And Yeah, the- totally, because you lost, right? <laughs> oh, 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 
sorry, sorry. I mean, that was the easy shot. But it's just like, where does it stop? Where does this yeah, end? That's true. Uh, and then there's a bit of irony in the week. The irony, the Russian irony of the week is that the Putin government is cracking down on foreign government's interference in elections. Vladimir Putin has urged Russia's security services to create a safe barrier against foreign interference in the country's society nice. and politics. Yeah, that's like, that sounds like... Uh, I, I guess Putin's worried about his competition that he's eliminating. I mean, that he, his... Oh, sorry, I yeah. said that wrong, That's I? basically like, let's make sure we block outside anti-Putin news. <laughs> Yeah, is what it exactly, sounds like. Yes. His comments come ahead of next year's presidential election. Artie Zilli Petrenka has the details. If it, you don't need the details. That's yeah. it right there. Uh, I, although at the same time, um, I bet you the U.S. is pretty hot to trot to interfere with those elections. <laughs> I bet you that's something we'd like to see very much. Now, I've noticed your Twitter feed hasn't seemed to let up, and I think no. I might know why. Devin Nunes is back in the news again. Who? This is a Fox News alert in an impromptu interview with the New York Times. President Trump predicting that special counsel Robert Mueller will, quote, treat him fairly. And while he's not calling for an end to the investigation, he told The New York Times, and I quote, the sooner it's worked out for the better it is, the better it is for the country. We'll get back to that in a moment. But also tonight. How does a guy that can't breathe end up hosting a Fox News program? (laughs) Um, So. The big point of speculation this week and last week has been, is Mueller going to investigate Trump? And he's apparently signaled to Trump's lawyers that uh, we may be having a chat soon. We'll turn to a letter exclusively obtained by Fox News from House Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunes to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, in which he blasts the DOJ and the FBI for their failure to fully, and I say fully, produce documents related to the anti-Trump dossier. Nunes writes that he wants the records by January 3rd. Which I do not believe he got. And he also wants to know by that date when the witnesses his committee subpoenaed back in August about the dossier will be available to testify. He ends the letter by writing, and I quote again, at this point it seems the DOJ and FBI need to be investigating themselves. So what he's, what he's getting at is he's asking the FBI for the information, the, 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 like the OG original intake information about the Trump dossier, the, the bed-pissing dossier. He, the, he's looking for how, what happened when that came into the FBI. How was it treated? What seriousness was it given? What, what actions were taken because of this? And the FBI is refusing to give it to him. Um, and and during this moment, while all of this is going on, there's a new narrative and a new name that's emerged. It's all about George. And he's the young man whose name many of us had never heard before. Now, George Papadopoulos is at the red hot center of the Russia investigation. And tonight, a new report on how he first came onto the FBI's radar. Have you have you heard the name George Papadopoulos? I have. He was the other guy that pled guilty. Yes, sir. Good, good memory. Here's ABC's David Wright. Tonight, new reporting about how U.S. authorities may have first learned about Russia's attempts to meddle in the 2016 election, reportedly because of what a former Trump campaign advisor told an Australian diplomat at this London wine bar in May of 2016. All right, so... It's so weird. Let's stop here. Yeah, which is, which is fascinating because this, this book kind of talks about some of these events, so it's like I've... It's really interesting. An Australian diplomat at a London bar. (laughs) A Trump lackey 
uh, we've actually talked about we talked about Papadopoulos um, a long time ago during the 2016 election. Trump was getting a lot of heat to uh, demonstrate that he had any any kind of foreign advisors that give him any kind of information. And Trump really fumbled the ball because in an interview, you guys remember this, I bet, in an interview with Joe Scarborough, Joe Scarborough asked him, who are your foreign advisors? Who do you confer with? And Donald Trump on the phone said, well, I confer with myself in foreign policy matters. And it bombed. And it was what it was it was the news for the next three days. Yeah. And so in a response, the Trump team scrambled to put together a foreign advisor commission. This is where Michael Flynn comes in, and this is where George Papadopoulos comes in. And they just got together with uh, your good buddy. My friend. Uh, and of course, everybody's good buddy, uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, and they all figures. sat around a table yeah. and they pretended like Donald Trump was paying attention to a bunch of foreign policy advice. They took some pictures. They tweeted it out. Are you saying that that was fake news, Chris? It was absolutely staged. Yeah. The book goes into this to some to, to some detail. Um, but we, we knew that at the time. We knew it was a rushed thing to just get a response back to the criticism. Right. And Papadopoulos was one of these guys in the photos. And um, that is about his extent of his involvement in the Trump campaign. Uh, he was a nobody that uh, was useful for a few moments because he had a couple of credentials on his uh, on his name, but like a PhD. But the fundamental problem with him was is that he was very verbose. He liked to write long memos. He liked to present complex ideas written down and presented. And it, he presented information in a way that Donald Trump did not consume. And so he was immediately just not useful to Donald Trump. This is gone. This goes into some detail in the book, uh, uh, but it's it's pretty clear. So Papadopoulos apparently gets the down low that the Russians have some dirt on Hillary. He goes to Australia, drinks too much wine, and tells an Australian ambassador. London. Goes to London. Oh, I thought it was Australia. No, no. He meets he an tells Australian, the Australian in London. London. Right. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know yeah, it's right. yeah. too many places. Right. No, okay. You're right. So you're much right. Money. Actually, let's back it up. We'll make sure it's clear. I'll back. I'll replay it. So yeah, he goes to London, meets the Australian ambassador, gets drunk, brags that they've got dirt on Hillary Clinton. The ambassador sits on this information for two months, then decides to call up the FBI because apparently he's got Comey's cell phone number, and uh, says, hey, I thought you should know that this lackey Trump guy told me that the Russians have some dirt on Hillary, and I don't know, just thought you should know. Yeah. And then that was, that was, supposedly, that was supposedly the moment that the FBI started investigating the Trump team, not the dossier. Italian okay. diplomat at this London wine bar in May of 2016. According to the New York Times, Trump advisor George Papadopoulos boasted to Australia's ambassador to the UK, Alexander Downer, that Russia had political dirt on Hillary Clinton. The Australians eventually passed that tip on to U.S. authorities. According to the paper, that was reportedly two months later, about the time that hacked DNC emails started appearing online. So that had been weeks after WikiLeaks tweets and 4chan speculation it's 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 as if these people operate in a complete vacuum. Now uh, I'm going to make a red book prediction right here. So producer Matt, if you're listening, uh, add this to our digital red book. I'm going to predict that at some point it comes out that the dossier 
was the original justification the FBI used to go to the FISA court. This narrative that it was Papadopoulos talking to an Australian ambassador in London after drinking too much wine is a cover story to legitimize Ooh. the FBI's investigation. Ooh. It was the dossier, nice angle. which the FBI at the time knew was opposition research, but they were politically motivated to do the wiretapping. So they used the dossier, despite Ooh. the fact that they knew it was opposition research, to get to the FISA court, to get the authorizations to wiretap Trump associates like Manafort. So this feels more, well, it feels a little baconish a little bit it is yeah so I bacon agree. and red book because because yeah. you're you're throwing you're uh, you're throwing in a little insinuation yeah there. i think it is a so, combo yeah my my my, my to, to, to differentiate the bacon that's the background okay but the clear prediction here is that i think it eventually at some point will come out in 2018 that the dossier was the reason they went to the fisa court not because papadopoulos was bragging in a london bar now do you think and i don't know if you have a clip on this or not but do you think that with Feinstein releasing all of that information— Oh, we'll get there. Yeah, I know. Has anything to do with what you just said? Maybe. Yes, I do, actually. Okay. I do yeah, think it does. Yeah, that's yeah. what I think, too. All right, we'll play a little more here. Papadopoulos, who recently pled guilty to lying to the FBI, was part of the Trump campaign's national security and foreign policy team. Yeah, here's the photo for you video audience members. This is the photo I was just talking about. You can tell Trump's not even paying attention. He's completely tuned out. He's just like, can we get the picture done? He he really, um, we've talked about this before, but the book really talks about this. He's got a short attention span. Um, and uh, he if basically he's pretty confident in his own opinion, so he doesn't need to listen to other people's opinion. Seen here at a meeting with candidate Trump. The president posted a picture of that meeting at the time, but later disavowed it. I don't remember much about that meeting. It was a very unimportant meeting. As for Papadopoulos, Trump insisted few people knew the young, low-level volunteer named George, who's already proven to be a liar. But Papadopoulos' fiance told George Stephanopoulos... God, this is classic, too, where you go to the fiance. You go to the fiance and, oh, he was more than a coffee boy. He was more than a coffee boy. Uh, of course the fiance says that. So uh, so the new cover story this week is that Papadopoulos was the, uh, was the spark that led to the investigation of fire. And that's pretty important. The, we, we really need it to be that as long as this investigation has any political weight. Because if it's revealed that it's a dossier... It's kind of cutting the legs out from underneath the investigation. Uh, it isn't just text messages hurting the legitimacy of Mueller's investigation, of course. The FBI's inf re infamous reliance on the Trump dossier is doing a good job as well. Uh, Republican Congressman Ron DeSantis of Florida says that use of the dossier undermines the basic legitimacy of the FBI's warrant to investigate the Trump campaign following last year's election. And Congressman DeSantis uh, joins us now. Let's stop there. So, you, so if, if it's revealed that it really was the dossier that was the spark for the fire, that's extremely embarrassing. Oh, yeah. And I going – so what did you – you asked me a couple of minutes ago about Dianne Feinstein. You said – do you think that so, – so this week, Dianne Feinstein made a kind of a big fuss because she released the transcript of uh, Simpson, who is the owner of Fusion GPS. Right. And he did like – what was it, like three hours? Yeah, it was like a three or four hour – Yeah, uh, like testimony. Testimony. And it was – Unclassified testimony. But it was still private. It was still private, but it was unclassified, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, th the background context to that is in the meantime, 
there is um, there is work by Grassley and others to get um, a, an investigation into Steely. Like a legal process started with Steely. Right. And a letter was sent saying, we recommend you begin an investigation. And so that's, I think, what precipitated Dianne Feinstein's move. Um, so Dianne Feinstein uh, decided in kind of a fast, sort of fast-moving moment for the 84-year-old to release this transcript. Wow, she really Republicans are. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Her and uh, her and uh, Nancy Pelosi are really holding I, in there. You know, I never understood on on the politician side, like you know, government officials. You know, they force people out of certain areas because of retirement age, right? Force retirement, fifty, you know, sixty-five, whatever it is. But politicians, they could stay in forever. Yeah. I think it's um, I think it's a big problem, and I think it's a huge. I, not to be ageist, I'm not ageist, but I think it is a significant issue because these people, what they essentially do is they spend thirty years accumulating unretractable power. Well, and not only that, usually the districts that they are residing in, and I know there's uh, there's some court cases working through the system right now, but on, on for both Democrats and Republicans that are so gerrymandered that they would have to have some sort of crazy scandal for them not to get reelected. The other thing about people that have been in the government for a really long time, like Dianne Feinstein specifically, in fact, I invite you to go Google Dianne Feinstein's husband, uh, is they get in positions where they are directly linked profit-wise to the military-industrial complex uh-huh. or to the spying apparatus. Yep. And specifically like Dianne Feinstein, she makes money when we go to war. Or, or telecom or yep. other yep. some sort of major industry. Mm-hmm. It ha- it's a big revolving door yeah. all yeah. the time. And the longer they're there, the deeper those connections go. And when they can raise an enormous amount of, of money uh, from, those, from those different interests, that gives them a huge oh. amount of power in the party. And if they, they get on a, some sort of major security committee or House Intelligence like Committee. Like Diane is. Exactly. Yeah. Then you have even more pull. So that is the context in which Diane Feinstein releases these transcripts. Republicans are furious with a Democratic senator for revealing closed-door testimony from the Russia investigation. Senator Diane Feinstein released more than 300 pages of comments from Glenn Simpson, the co-founder of Fusion GPS, to the Senate Judiciary Committee back in August. Simpson's firm commissioned the now-famous dossier on President Trump that contains unsubstantiated evidence of his ties with Russia. So I have that linked in the show notes. It's in a Huffington Post article. So if you see that link in the show notes, you can go there and they have it embedded. I read it. And um, a couple of things jump out at me. Um, One guy that he thinks was murdered as a result of all of this in Russia uh, that guy died of a heart attack in his car. It's possible he was murdered. Um, you know, it's, it seems like it's possible. But so there's a like there's an inference in the interview about uh, how he's concerned about sources because somebody was murdered. Um, but the thing that he says in here that really struck me as new information. And again, it's all linked in the show notes. Maybe you can find something else. Steely, Christopher Steely, whatever his freaking name is. Yeah. What's it? Steely, whatever? Uh, I think so. Is it Christopher? I don't remember the first Yeah, I'm blanking on it right now. Um, He didn't work for Fusion GPS as a uh, a dirt digger until after the Hillary campaign started paying Fusion GPS for opposition research. And he was hired specifically to find a Kremlin connection. Oh. 
So Steely doesn't come in. So Fusion GPS, Fusion GPS, this guy, it's all in the transcript, but so this guy, uh, Simpson, Glenn Simpson, uh, he used to work for the Wall Street Journal until 2009. And in 2009, he launched his own business and Fusion GPS is part of it. And he brought in a few other investigative journalists who didn't like to work for these stupid media companies anymore. And they got to go do like essentially um, hired for journal – hit for hire journalism kind of stuff. Right. And uh, they would go after specific targets for big payers and do a bunch of oppo research. And they kind of built out different different businesses and Fusion GPS was one of them. When they were a client of um, – I can't remember, Free Beacon or whoever, somebody that was semi-tangentially connected to the Bush campaign – um, and doing opposition research against Trump. It was just this core set of standard Fusion GPS journalists doing the opposition research. When, when, they, when they gave up, when the conservative group gave up on the opposition research and the Hillary Clinton campaign via a lawyer's office took over the Fusion GPS contract, at that point, Steely was brought on specifically to find the Kremlin connection. Okay. Paula Reed has the testimony that tries to support the claims made in that report. Paula, good morning. Good morning. Now, Democrats say the testimony shows the dossier was legitimate and it actually mirrored what the FBI heard from other sources. Now, in Simpson's testimony, he claims he had no reason to doubt the reporting by Christopher Steele, the British... Or just Steele. So the E on the end is silent. I apologize if that was extremely obnoxious to listen to. It's just Steele... At least I got his first name right. You think I would, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Christopher. So the problem is, is you know, with the, wh- wh- why I why I'm why I'm screwing that up is because honestly, I've read more about Christopher Steele than I have heard or watched about Christopher Steele. Yeah. So the E is silent. He's a former MIA MI8 agent and uh, s- former uh, actual semi-legitimate spy. So that gave him a lot of credibility. It's like what a double oh five, I him, guess. Well it just it just gave him like a resume that impressed everybody. Right. Reason to doubt the reporting by Christopher Steele, the British intelligence agent who was the author of the dossier. Now Simpson stated Steele took the dossier to the FBI when he became concerned that there was a security issue about whether a presidential candidate was oh. being blackmailed. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Comey. Oh, 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 my client hired me specifically to find a Kremlin connection, and now I found something that I'm just so concerned about. You know, honestly, honestly, I didn't, I didn't want to even find this, but this is what my investigations led me to. Also, I'll give a copy to my friend John McCain. By Russia, <laughs> he went on to say the FBI had reason to believe Steele because they had other intelligence that indicated the same thing, including a human source from inside the Trump organization. That would supposedly be Papadapadapadapadapadapadapolis. Republicans are calling Feinstein's move confounding, and they suggest it could jeopardize future testimony. So think about this now. So now it's become partisan. So you have the right side of the investigation committee that are recommending Steele uh, to, to, uh, to the Justice Department for investigation, which the left is pissed about. And then on the left side, you have Feinstein releasing the transcript to a witness they said would be private. And so now the right's pissed off. So everybody's all partisan now. Paula, Mr. Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohn, filed a defamation lawsuit against BuzzFeed News and Fusion GPS over this dossier. What does that mean? 
Well, it's a risky move. On the one hand, this plays well with this ongoing conservative campaign to sow doubts about the Russia investigation and the dossier. But, John, a lawsuit like this, it has a discovery phase, and that could require the president or Mr. Cohen to release personal information that could be politically damaging. Something tells me the people that are initiating the lawsuit are probably aware that there's a discovery phase. So I feel like or they just filed the lawsuit to spin up the I feel the like machine. I feel like out of all of the things in the Donald Trump presidency, immigration, tax reform, health care, um, responding to natural disasters out of all of them, North Korea, uh, out of all of them, the one singular topic that Donald Trump is truly 100 percent to his core confident in is that he didn't collude with the Russians. I believe he truly feels that way. And so from that perspective, why the hell not go after these people? It, it, because there's nothing to worry about in discovery. The thing, though, is, yeah, he, he says it all the time and we joke about it. Yeah, there is no collusion, no collusion. But there are things that, you know, he'll come out and just say in general that are instantly proven false. Yeah. And and so when you have that kind of track record yeah, in, in yeah. my eyes and my yeah. ears— you could say that, you know, the sky is blue and it's really hard to believe you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, he could be telling the truth. Absolutely, he could be. But he's had such a terrible track record. And that's that's the problem. This new book doesn't that help. hard to believe. This new book doesn't help. So Fire and yeah. Fury, it was rushed. It wasn't even going to come out until this week. But uh, after Trump's lawyer was going to sue the Actually, publisher. Well, he, well, to be fair, they filed a cease and desist. Yeah, I they mean, did. They did. And, and then they said, <laughs> And they <laughs> rushed it to print. Yes. They rushed it. Because they, they knew that they're not going to take it to the court. Um, and, and to that extent, there is uh, there are spelling mistakes. There's grammatical errors. There are uh, the wrong people attributed to uh, the wrong jobs. Um, so there's there's some of that in there because of the rushed nature of it. But I wasn't I wasn't even following this book. I wasn't following Michael Wolf. I wasn't aware of Fire yeah. and Fury. It wasn't until this clip that I was monitoring for Unfilter that I even kind of became aware of this book. An odd move for a president, but not for Donald Trump. His lawyer is issuing a cease and desist letter to Steve Bannon after he described Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with Russians at Trump Tower as treasonous. What? Steve Bannon? He's going after Steve Bannon? Trump's going after Steve Bannon? Steve Bannon? His homie? Book. But Bannon on his radio show this morning says he still stands by the president. Take a listen. Yeah, Bannon did a lot of backtracking. We'll cover more of that in the overtime. But this was the thing that put this book on my radar. And I bet I put it on a lot of your radars out there too. And and so this piqued my interest, but then there was this enormous response by Trump. New fallout over that explosive new book on the White House. After the president tried to stop its release, the publisher rushed it to bookstores today. In the book, Steve Bannon turning on the president and his family. President Trump is tweeting about Bannon now, nicknaming him Sloppy Steve. <laughs> the president is also going after the author of the bombshell book. Tonight, the author saying he spoke to multiple members of the president's inner circle. He says they told him the president is like a child. He does not read. He does not listen. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, that's it. That's, wow. Uh, so this guy interviews 200 people uh, for the book, uh, Michael Wolf. Um, and I'll tell you – so you might be wondering, well, why the hell would the Trump administration let this ugly son of a bitch sit down in the West Wing and get the most intimate details of the first seven to 11 months of the Trump administration? Why the hell? 
And so for to 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 understand that context, you have to understand Steve Bannon a little bit. Steve Bannon um was the was the 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 like the nationalist voice of Donald Trump. You remember his inauguration speech? How hard he came in on that inauguration speech? Oh yeah. He talked about the slaughter of the American people and you know, he really came it down as uh, that was that was peak Steve Bannon coming through Trump. Steve Bannon is very much a believer in a nationalist movement about about bringing us back trade-wise to the 1950s, about making the borders tight, about changing trade so that way it favors American labor, about doubling down on the things that make America, quote-unquote, great again, his words. And so Steve Bannon really believes that he's responsible for Donald Trump getting elected because he tapped into this populist nationalist movement and positioned Donald Trump as the champion as the supreme leader. Go look at our Donald. Um, and so Steve Bannon wanted somebody there to document this historic presidency that he had brought in. He wanted somebody there to tell the Steve Bannon story. And Steve Bannon initially, Steve Bannon was there during the end of the Trump campaign. He was there as part of the core transition team, and he was there as part of the core team for the first hundred days. So Steve Bannon had a lot of influence, and he wanted somebody there to tell that story. And be, I, this is now, now this is my this is my belief. But because of that uh, narcissist reason, or because of this, we want to document history. This Michael Wolff character was granted. Um, over 20 visits to the White House and was granted um, extended days just sitting on a couch listening to people while doors were open and doing interviews and um, having off-the-cuff conversations with Trump and Bannon and Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn and just everybody that was coming through the White House. And He was like the, the Counselor Troy of, of the yeah. White House. Like everybody was going to talk to him. And then he, and then he has tried to put it all together – by taking these 200 different sources, and I think a couple of major sources were, were Steve Bannon and a few others, um, and he has put together his experience. And this is what the Trump White House is reacting to. So that's the context here. Your White House correspondent, Cecilia Vega, tonight. President Trump today headed off to Camp David for the weekend. As for questions... He wasn't having it. We're making America great again. Thank you. Thank you very much. The new book, Fire and Fury, taking his White House and it seems all of Washington by storm. At bookstores, long lines, within hours, empty shelves. The president now lashing out at author Michael Wolff and former chief strategist Steve Bannon, a key voice in the book, quoted disparaging the president and his family. The president tweeting the book is full of lies, misrepresentations and sources that don't exist. Look at this guy's past and watch what happens to him and sloppy Steve. Wolf stands by every word and tells NBC News the president's inner circle thinks he is unfit for office. They all say he is like a child. And what they mean by that is he has an, a need for immediate gratification. This is something that is systematically demonstrated in the book. Um, and the, my, uh, my interpretation of the book is that 20% of it is, sh- is shit. 20% of it's false. And the rest of it all rings quite true to me. And the need for immediate gratification rings quite true. 
And there's he adds a dynamic to Trump's need for gratification that I hadn't considered. The people that Trump needs gratification from just as like an average everyday level is from the people around him, the media, the people. He wants to be recognized as something great. That's what he's all about. But the people that he desperately wants recognition from are people that he respects as perhaps even more famous or greater than him. Like your Rupert Murdoch's or your Vladimir Putin's. And so he's willing to say and do certain things simply because he just wants the gratitude and the recognition of those individuals. That's the simple motivation. I mean, it, may, it, it makes logical sense, especially when you go back and think about the state visits that he's had, like in China and other countries, where he has commented about the, the big red carpet rollout and the yep. huge crowds yep. and all these people. Yep. That lines up. It that does really line does. up. Exactly. It does. All say he is like a child. And what they mean by that is he has an, a need for immediate gratification. It's all about him. They say he's um, a, a moron, an idiot. Let's remember, this man does not read, does not listen. This is a point that he has doubled down on in all of his interviews is that he does not he the, Trump does not process information by reading. Uh, and the colloquial term they're using is he's post literate. It's he's a visual learner. Wolf paints a portrait of a mentally unstable man, saying the president often repeats the same stories every three minutes and recently at Mar-a-Lago failed to recognize lifelong friends. I, I will. You remember that clip we played where he didn't recognize Giuliani? Yeah, I remember. And he was right across the table, right? Yeah, yeah. There. Uh, so he was at. Uh, you can. I'll leave this as an exercise to the listener. But he was at Camp David recently, and uh, he introduced. I think it was Mitch McConnell first. I might be wrong, but you'll have to go watch it. He introduces Mitch McConnell, who is standing next to him. <laughs> I believe he's to his. See if Trump's facing the camera. Uh, I, I believe he's to Trump's left. Yeah, I think so. And uh, he says, and Mitch McConnell's going to speak on this because he's, li- he's reading from a prompt. And uh, he looks around for Mitch McConnell. And he's right there. Mitch McConnell's right to him. And he sees him pretty quick. But it's just like that Giuliani thing we watched. Yeah. And so I think people are interpreting that as he's losing it. I don't think it's that. I think it's a man who is consistently existing in his own reality, like Steve Jobs. He's got his own reality that he exists within where he's constantly thinking about one person and that's donald j trump and so he just doesn't simply notice people because he's too busy thinking about donald j trump but it comes across as he's going nuts wolf paints a portrait of a mentally unstable man saying the president often repeats the same stories every three minutes and recently at mar-a-lago failed to recognize lifelong friends i I will Quote Steve Bannon, he's lost it. These incidents not confirmed by ABC News, but the White House now forced to answer questions about the president's mental stability. It's disgraceful and laughable. Uh, If he was unfit, he probably wouldn't be sitting there. This is an incredibly uh, strong and good leader. Ooh. Ooh, that's it. <laughs> that's the defense you go to. Like, after all these months you've been working with Trump, that's what you go to? And there's no collusion. This is an incredibly uh, 
strong and good leader. Um, Their strategy? To disparage Wolf as someone who had limited sources and limited access. The president tweeting today, I never spoke to him for book. But Wolf says whether or not the president <laughs> real- <laughs> he tweeted that. Was for well, he was trying to keep the he was trying to keep the character the countdown. You know, I mean, he has what two hundred and eighty characters. Yeah, well, you got more characters now. You do have, you, Apparently, my player is going to not pause. It refuses to pause. He's got more characters now. Yeah. Um. So the uh, the book the book paints a picture of somebody who prefers to take things in visually and um, typically has a supreme confidence in his own opinion. And you have to be a certain kind of presenter to get Trump's attention. And Trump responds more strongly to people's energy and their overall presentation style and confidence than the actual words that they're saying. And that's what Steve Bannon was so damn good at is he could on cue launch into a long sort of like you and I could on unfilter. That's what Steve Steve Bannon could launch into something and he could do it with an energy and a cadence that grabbed Trump's attention and that gave him sort of this this ability to communicate with Trump that a lot of other people, with the exception of maybe his daughter and Jared Kushner, didn't couldn't get to. They just couldn't get access like that. And so that's why I think I was really surprised when when supposedly all of a sudden there was like going to be a cease and desist coming towards Steve Bannon. And and, and it was these the, what I realized was it was these quotes where Steve Bannon sort of braggadociously talking about his grand strategy. And in here he talks about Donald J. Trump Jr., you know, being, uh, you know, crackable, like you're going to crack him. You're going to you're going to be able to. And he talks about Kushner uh, getting paid by Israel and stuff like that, like. You know, stuff that's damaging. Yeah. And so... Um, well, if you can come out front and, and start, you know, pulling people through the dirt, you know, you, you, you try to say, oh, this is crap, this is no good. The thing it's, is... It's, it's, a, it's a standard operating procedure when it's a thing that you don't like. Well, I think... So, so the thing is, is Bannon and Kushner were competitive with each other, which is the, the book well, really do, goes into. And but we already did that. It's pretty obvious from the before, outside. Before, yeah. 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 Uh, but the thing in the thing in here where some of these quotes are, like the ones that have got him in the most trouble with the Trump administration... Uh, Bannon wasn't wasn't working with the Trump administration during those times. It was back in June. Some of the stuff went, and he wasn't he wasn't involved with the Trump administration back then. So it's sort of like way to kind of way to kind of screw up because like you're talking about stuff that you weren't actually a direct witness to, and you're being pretty inflammatory. <laughs> of course, Trump's going to respond to that. Sure. And the problem is, is that um, I, I, apparently that's political suicide now for Steve Bannon. Because Steve Bannon kind of got screwed. Breitbart is running this headline. Stephen K. Bannon steps down from Breitbart News uh, Network. Uh, obviously, Steve Bannon, who was the, uh, the, the, the top honcho at Breitbart and then went to run the Trump campaign and then became the chief strategist for Trump in the White House and then was ignominiously fired by Trump and is in a big brouhaha with him. Uh, he has been uh, he's stepping down. I guess we don't know exactly uh, the terms, but but one. I kind of have some some idea. So Mercer, the Mercer family was the big sponsor of Breitbart and Steve Bannon. And uh, Steve Bannon has found himself another rich person. Um, and the Mercers have pulled out of Breitbart uh, and put their weight behind Trump. And I think that's probably what's going on with Bannon is he's, we probably have heard. We'll, we will probably hear more from him because he's got a new rich person that's financing him who's much more uh, of a nationalist than the Mercers. The Mercers have gotten a taste of power. And uh, they're going to stick with Trump for a bit. And that means rejecting Bannon. Um, So let's talk about more about the book. So the book, 
The book really strongly paints a picture of a man who needs constant gratification and approval from everyone. Oh, are you happy you voted for me? You are so lucky that I gave you that privilege. And I believe that's truly how Donald Trump feels. That that just feels weird to me. I'm sorry. And I think if you look at um, the the tax bill that passed recently, GOP leaders that are working with Trump have learned a very hard and very um, demasculating and um, difficult lesson, which the Morning Joy show was more than happy to point out. Mr. President, I have to say that you're living up to every, everything I thought you would. Something this big, something this generational, something this profound could not have been done without exquisite presidential leadership. This is one of the great privileges of my life to stand here on the White House lawn with the president of the United States who I love and appreciate so much. Jesus Christ. People often ask, when did you know? When did you know tax reform could be achieved in America for the first time in 31 years? And my answer is always the same. November 8th, when President Trump, you were elected president of the United States. So the Republicans that are working with Trump have learned a lesson, and that's grovel and constantly, constantly praise him. And um, there is a, there is a, there's <laughs> So did you see uh, – so Trump was – we'll get to this actually. We're going to get to this in a moment. But Trump was recently talking immigration and uh, – <laughs> Oh, are you talking about the open table discussion? Yeah. 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 Well, there's uh, – he, he attempts to make some – he attempts to make some clarifications and uh, he also in this clip manages to over and over again talk about how his open table discussion was received. Parent need for approval from the news media, something he touched on while looking back at that meeting on the Dreamers. Sure, their ratings were fantastic. They always are. Which is why I think the media will ultimately support Trump in the end, because they're going to say if we if Trump doesn't win in three years, they're all out of business. <laughs> you guys will be out of business, but the boom holders are still going to be there. So that's good. Yeah, actually. So he he kind of talks about he talks about a little bit, but he actually starts the entire meeting this is today as we record he starts the entire meeting talking about how he was received his last open table one from the senate from the house comes back with an agreement i'm signing it i mean oh that's an old clip sorry let me jump ahead two networks who were phenomenal for about two hours then after that they were called by their bosses and say oh wait a minute and unfortunately a lot of those anchors sent us letters saying that was one of the greatest Meetings they've ever witnessed. Yeah. Yeah, I bet a lot of them sent him letters saying that. He starts out the – this This is how he starts this meeting. He starts this meeting reviewing the press for the last meeting. It was reported as incredibly good. And my performance, if, you know, some of them called it a performance. I could – He's smart. He, corre- he realizes when he steps in it and he corrects himself immediately. So people that say he's a moron, I don't think they're giving him enough credit because you can hear him immediately correct himself. If, you know, some of them called it a performance. I consider it work. See, so immediately, he immediately like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said I shouldn't have called it that. In the praise, he's no, meeting with lawmakers on you. It was reported as incredibly good. And my performance, if, you know, some of them called it a performance. I consider it work. But. Got great reviews by everybody other than 
two networks who were phenomenal for about two hours. Let, let me say something for a minute. It's not really a grind gear, so don't you don't have to worry about that. But you know, I know I analyze what's going on in the news. I analyze things that are going on in the world and how the media is, you know, presenting information and stuff. This is our president right now, Chris. Okay, and he's out there not talking about the issues at hand. He's not talking about how we need to re, you know, reform immigration or try to make and do things better for, for everybody, not just Republicans, but everybody. You remember his first— And, he, and, he's, stand, and he's sitting there to just critiquing— In his first it's big like, meeting at the CIA oh, where he stands on. in front of the wall of all of the fallen CIA members, and it was his first big, like, I'm going to try to open a bridge to the, to the intelligence agency. Yeah. He talked for 25 minutes about how the media treats him. Um, it's really important to him about how he's perceived. It, the, 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 the Trump, the Trump uh, a lot of his attention goes to that, the book says. And the book also says that he's, he's pretty easily swayed by the last person he speaks to. And it's something that folks like Steve Bannon would exploit is they would try to – so what Steve Bannon would do is he would just, he would just stay around till like 6 or 7 o'clock to when a lot of people have, had left and Trump would be ready to have dinner. And then Bannon would join him for dinner and have the last word and would be able to influence the way Trump thinks. Because if you, if you present Trump information with a certain energy and accuracy, he goes with it. Yeah. And uh, like, like for example, like we've this, this moment with Dianne Feinstein where uh, Dianne Feinstein Diane Feinstein says, "Hey, what do you think about just doing legislation on DACA alone? Let's make the let's just let's take care of the dreamers and not worry about anything else. A clean DACA bill. A clean DACA bill. Yes. Which which is a Democrat wet dream. It's the perfect scenario for Democrats. They don't have to address Trump's wall, which is which they call security. They can just take care of the dreamers." which is the wet dream for the Democrats. And it happens to be the complete opposite of what Donald Trump Trump ran on, let's build the wall. We got to build the wall. The, the, what, out of all of like the takeaway quotes from Donald Trump during the campaign, well, we got to build the wall. And Mexico's going to pay, pay for, for it. it. Got to build the wall. Mexico's going to pay for it. It's a defining element of the Trump campaign and the Trump administration. Now watch Dianne Feinstein. With a certain level of authority, she'll mention Kennedy and, and, and she'll give a certain level of presentation and watch how Donald Trump is immediately swayed. And I think and I don't know how you would feel about this, but I'd like to ask the question, what about a clean DACA bill now and with a commitment that we go into a comprehensive immigration reform. You can actually, in the background, you can see one of the Republicans sticking his finger up. Um, sir, that's uh, sir, that's that's one hundred percent the opposite of everything you've campaigned on. Sir, watch that guy in the background. He's actually immediately trying to flag Trump that this is dangerous. Of immigration reform procedure, like we did back. Well, I remember when Kennedy was here, and it was really a major, major effort, and. Uh, it was a great disappointment that it went nowhere. nowhere. Uh, I have no problem. I, I think that's basically what Dick is saying. We're going to come out with DACA. We're going to do DACA. And then we can start immediately on the phase two, which would be comprehensive. Would be agreeable to that? Yeah. Now, the truth is, if, if Trump gives them DACA, if Trump gives them the Dreamers, he loses 100 percent of his negotiating leverage with the Democrats. He has no card to play. 
He has no way to bring them to the table. The Democrats desperately want to solve the dreamers problem. It's a great solution to low wages. It's a great way to get votes. It's a great way to win in the midterms. They've got to solve the DACA problem. It is of utmost priority. And if Trump gives them that without getting his wall, there will never, ever be a wall. You can accept that or hate that or love that. I don't give a shit. The point is, it is completely politically unsavvy. The great negotiator, the guy that's going to make the great deals, the, the deals that Obama was too stupid to make with Iran, but he's going to come in and make the best deals. And within 25 seconds, <laughs> 84-year-old Diane Feinstein, by quoting John Kennedy, is able to completely change Trump's position that has been his core campaign promise since he became a candidate to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. And within moments, he was switched and he gets corrected by the boys sitting around him. In fact, watch how he recovers. But it is astonishing to watch that the number one political promise by this man can be immediately changed by Diane Feinstein. It's just disgusting. Nowhere. Uh, I have no problem. I, I think that's basically what Dick is saying. We're going to come out with DACA. We're going to do DACA. And then we can start immediately on the phase two, which would be comprehensive. Why would they ever give him that? Why would the Democrats ever, ever, ever agree to comprehensive immigration reform under Donald Trump. First of all, politicians will parse the word comprehensive forever. They'll also parse the word clean. So they're not even going to agree on what these words mean. Yeah, I would like, I would like to do that. You can tell, oh, yeah, yeah, I would like that. You can tell he realizes maybe I've said something wrong here. Watch, watch him. Which would be comprehensive. Would be yeah, I would like, I would like to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I think a lot of people would like to see that. A lot of people, a lot of people, which yeah. is a go-to Trump moment. And he calls on somebody else, but somebody else speaks up. But I think we have to do DACA first. Mr. President. We have to do DACA first, which has been completely against everything he's gone right. for. You need to be clear, though. I, th I think what Senator Feinstein's asking here. Now, this is the person speaking up who was not called on. When we talk about just DACA, we don't want to be back here two years later. You have to have security, as the secretary would tell you. Security is a 1984 news speak for building the wall. Security means the wall. And, and now Trump will attempt to dig himself out. Oh, no, 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 no. No, when she means a clean DACA bill, she also means the crazy-ass wall that I want. The secretary would tell you. But I think that's what she's saying. That is not what she's saying. No. <laughs> that is, a clean DACA bill does no. not mean build your crazy-ass fucking solar wall. As the secretary would tell you. But I think that's what she's saying. No, I think no, 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 I think she's saying No, 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 no. What do you think I'm saying, Diane Feinstein says? I'm thinking you're saying DACA without security. Are you talking about security as well? Now, security, again, newspeak for the wall. Well, I, I think if, if we have some meaningful, comprehensive uh, in, uh, immigration reform, that's really where the security goes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if we So hold the security for comprehensive immigration reform because again, my personal singular political definition of comprehensive includes a wall. We could get the DACA bill because March is coming 
and people are losing their status every day. Which means if they sign that DACA bill with no comprehensive immigration reform, you will never come to the table again. The only reason Dianne Feinstein is at this table right now is because of that March deadline. And in this moment, with all of the cameras there so that way he could demonstrate to the world how competent he was, he completely flipped on the core fundamental promise of his campaign. And the book makes the case that the last person he talks to, if they have the right energy and the right presentation, will sway him. And that he spends hours and hours of television, of time watching television and making phone calls, which also lines up with recent reporting. What about Donald Trump's executive time? It How seems to be there? expanding out a good bit. So what we reported last night on Axios is that the president's schedule has been secretly shrinking. The book also talks about how uh, Morning Joe was used as sort of a weapon by the Trump administration. Early on, Trump would call them directly and just bitch or just do it or do a live interview even. Um, And then things started to change and they stopped talking to Trump, but they started talking to Jared Kushner, who got them to start really railing on Bannon. And they got he got them to start saying President Bannon President Bannon. He got Joe Scarborough to start calling Bannon President Bannon all the time. Do you remember when Joe was doing that? I do remember this, yeah. That was done. That was by the suggestion of Jared Kushner to drive Trump crazy. How easy it is to, to, to just turn the knife in the back. Just how easy it is. Over many months. In the early days of the administration, they had early morning meetings. You had, you know, breakfast roundtables with Uh, business leaders in the Roosevelt Room. But uh, these days, Donald Trump has his first meeting in the Oval Office at 11 a.m. Wow. And there there are two schedules. There's the public schedule that they release to the media and to the public. The one that doesn't say golfing. And then there's the real schedule. And I was shown the real schedule. And there has a block of time in the morning from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. labeled executive time. It says that it's in the Oval Office, but that's not true. He's actually in the residence, watching TV, making phone calls, tweeting, uh, and he has oh his God. first meeting of the day at 11 oh a.m. Now, um, they can laugh at that, but, um, you know, this sounds like a condemnation of Trump. This whole – this book is really a con- – the, the, the book is a condemnation of Trump. But um, – and I, again, I say about 20 percent of it's bullshit. But um, I, don't, I don't see it that way. I see it as a symptom of the United States politics that a man like this is the man that is best suited to become the leader of this country, that this is the person that has the tools to get to this position, I think speaks volumes about our political process and our political system. And um, in some ways, after reading this book, my interpretation is, is that Donald Trump is uniquely qualified to be president in 2018. And what I mean by that is he responds immediately, instantaneously. He goes – he has a flight or fight response and he goes to fight mode at 100 miles per hour without rest immediately. Barack Obama would take a week to respond to something. And in the meantime, shit would just go crazy with speculation, crazy theories, and and hours and hours and hours of right-wing radio content. And then Barack Obama would come out 
And uh, he would stumble through some 15-minute speech where he would take 30-second pauses between words to explain what was going on. Where Donald Trump responds instantly. And it's that sort of instant tenacity that makes him a certain sort of weaponized politician that is extremely hard to compete with. And uh, the, the truth is about this book is part of it's true and part of it's crap. And it's really hard to tell because everybody involved is essentially an unreliable source. The bombshell book giving life to new questions about President Trump's fitness, Trump's fitness for office. And while the book is flying off the shelf, so much so that the publishing house is rushing to print more books amid a backlog of orders, legitimate questions are now being raised about the reliability of the book's narrative, how the reporting was done, the sources used or not used, and details in the book that have since proven to be false. It's difficult to ascertain, frankly, just what the truth is here, since we have two unreliable narrators. Author Michael Wolf, whose credibility as a journalist has been seriously questioned before and who has in the marketing of this book already made several questionable statements, and President Trump, whose relationship with the facts is tenuous at best. The president initially tweeted about the book, quote, I authorized zero access to White House. I actually turned the author down many times for author of phony book. I never spoke to him for book full of lies, misrepresentations, and sources that don't exist. Look at this guy's past and watch what happens to him and Sloppy Steve. Sloppy Steve, of course, is a new nickname for the president's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon, who was quoted throughout the book, making disparaging, insightful, and other remarks about various people. Now, the White House says the last time they have a record of Michael Wolff speaking with President Trump was in February 2017, just barely into President Trump's term. Wolf says he spent a cumulative three hours with President Trump during the campaign, the transition, and in the White House. I interviewed him at that point. After that, we would, we would, we would speak. I'm sure he didn't think they were interviews. And, and in all fairness, he might say, I was not being interviewed. The president's defender. I'll just say in the overtime, I'm going to play an extended interview with him without any interruptions. So that way you can just sort of observe the author of the book and get a better feel for the character. Uh, so stay tuned for the overtime for that. In all fairness, he might say, I was not being interviewed. The president's defenders are out in full force attempting to disparage both Wolf and Bannon, though not necessarily effectively. Former aide Sebastian Gorka, who was forced out of the White House in August, wrote a column in the Hill newspaper today attacking Wolf and attacking the media, including CNN. But in Gorka's <laughs> purported defense of the president, he also writes, quote, I met Michael Wolf in Reince Priebus's office where he was waiting to talk to Steve Bannon. And after I had been told to also speak to him for his book which frankly doesn't sound like an author with no access and no cooperation from the White House. It sounds like the complete opposite. But it's not as if all of Mr. Gorka's complaints about Wolf and the book are poorly founded. Wolf's reporting should be met with skepticism. The book is riddled with errors and rumors. And in his marketing of the book, Wolf made the unbelievable assertion that 100 percent of the president's family members and top advisors have concerns about his mental fitness for the job. 100%. That's simply not true. And consider this from CBS This Morning. Did you speak with any members of the president's cabinet for this book? I did not. You did not? I did not. And did you speak with the vice president? I did not. And there's this. Three errors in just this one paragraph on page 78, a misspelling of Democratic strategist Hillary Rosen's name. Wilbur Ross is identified as the labor secretary when he's actually the commerce secretary. And Wolf 
has reporter Mark Berman at a restaurant which Berman says he's never been to. Now, NBC's Chuck Todd asked Wolf about these errors and why readers shouldn't be concerned about the picture it paints. Do, do you, you regret some of these errors in there? Do you wish a second? Somebody, it feels as if you didn't get I think, a copy edit. I think I, I, um, I think I mixed up a Mike Berman mm-hmm. and a Mark Berman. For that, I apologize. Um, um, but the book speaks for itself. Read the book. What's I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. Well, I'll answer. That's what any author would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you have to kind of, you kind of. It, I feel like what it does is it gives you a framework to view some of the news out of the Trump White House, but you right. can't walk away with any particular story and go, "That absolutely happened." Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Before we get to uh, the sack and the high note, we got to cover producer Matt's. Well, he he made this segment this week. Like he's this is his favorite segment. He created this segment. He got these clips. Do we have a bed? What is this? Are you ready for this? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's UFOs. Life on the X Files TV show couldn't be more fitting this week, given new revelations of possible UFO sightings. A recent report by the New York Times unveiled the existence of a real life X Files department. It's a five-year secret government program to investigate mysterious flying objects, and especially focused on encounters by members of the military, like this one. Oh my God. We're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, I think, dude. We're going to talk about that in a second. The man who ran that secret program now says the existence of UFOs have been proved beyond reasonable doubt. He joins me now, Luis Elizondo. Uh, thank so you for- let me say something about this. I am okay with this secret government program. <laughs> I guess because, they should, that's what they should be looking into, and, right? And, and yeah, and you know why I'm okay with it? Because if there's something out there flying around in the air, <laughs> we should kind of know if it's hostile or not, right? Can't argue with that. I mean, so can't argue with that. So, and, and by the way, I I forget the number, but the number of uh, the the amount in this program that was spent. When you compare it to the national uh, defense budget, it's so low <laughs> that it's not even like on the radar. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, in the supporters sync, I have the uh, the raw Pentagon footage yeah. of the possible uh, UFO. Yeah, it, it's pretty compelling, actually. It is very compelling. <laughs> It's 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 fucking. He says it's. Uh, he says something that they they bleep out. Uh, he says. Uh, yeah. It's it's fucking going on, bro. Going on, bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. There's a whole fleet of them. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. So anyways, if you want to see that whole clip, you can get the supporter sync if you're a patron. But uh, Mr. Chase, before we get into the high note this week. Yes, sir. What about the sack? Let's bring it open. Yeah. (laughs) We're back, baby. (laughs) So I uh, asked Club 33. Who? What? I've never heard of this. Club 33 is a unique and exclusive club within the Unfiltered Patreon. Patreon.com slash Unfiltered. Shut your face. And if you're new to the show and you're wondering what this Club 33 these are our premium supporters. These are the guys and gals out there who not only believe in what we're doing, but they're willing to put their money behind it by donating $33 or more per month. Yeah, we're going to dedicate the us. overtime coming up just to them. Yeah. Did anybody uh, slip any notes in your sack? I got week, a couple Mr. of Chase? notes in the sack. Michael writes and says, hey, welcome back, gentlemen, and happy new year. 
Uh, there's been a bit of attention given to Booker and Harris being appointed to the judi- judiciary. I'm sorry, what? Never mind. Uh, committee. Uh, most of that attention focused on race, of course, but really, how much clout does the minority party have in this committee anyway? I've got a few ideas, but I really would love to hear about what both of you think of the Democratic angle here. And by the way, I hope your support has grown. I know I've been spreading the word. Thanks, Michael. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, you look at the the Senate Intelligence Committee and Chris's great friend, Adam Schiff. A good buddy. Good buddy. And you see what kind of influence he tries to have, even though he doesn't have the keys to the car, right? Yeah, so, it's, it's a way to try to get more power. Yeah, and, and more traction and, and spin your own agenda. That so. said, though. I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. All right. Veratuna writes in and says, hey, well, nice to be back, really. Hello, everybody. There is so much that has been happening over the past few weeks. The story that made me chuckle today was the U.S. having to eat crow and buy gas from Russia via a London diversion because of uh, sanctions, right? I'm in my time. But on a more serious note, traction is beginning to slip in Syria. And while BBC Newsnight puts on films about the poor civilians in Idlib and show pictures of white helmets doing their thing with talking heads. As they do. Who say, sure, Al-Shabaab are not very nice with what with what the beheading, disappearances, and rape, but Assad is much worse. You know what really grinds my gears? More and more evidence is coming to light about just how much weapons and support these jihadists have been getting from yes. the West and yeah. Saudi Arabia. Including uh, helping with their exit, too. Yeah. Just amazing. He goes, blah, I wish that BBC would stop with the groupthink that comes with listening to too much of the U.S. State Department. Glad you guys are back. Let's hope we can survive another year, huh? And finally, last but certainly not least, Robert writes in and goes, OMG! I say balderdash! Oprah! (laughs) The distraction of the week there, my friend. Yeah, man. Oh, my God. So if you want to be a patron and jump in the Club 33, all you got to do is head over to patreon.com slash unfilter. Yes. And uh, right now... Club 33 is actually full, so you can get on the waiting list right oh, now. Oh, any, uh, any level we appreciate also supporting absolutely. the show, spreading the word. I appreciate all of that stuff. Totes. Love you much. All right, let's let's uh, let's move into the high note. Mommy yes. needs a joint. Hey, and uh, let's talk, What are the, why, why do we do the high note? We try to do it every damn week if we can, and that takes some serious dedication. Why the hell? You know. I mean, it's not like I've got. I, I don't got stock in here, the cannabis here's com- why. industry. Here's why: because we we started this this series episode one mm. about cannabis. It's true. Back it's in true. the day, it's true. And it's whoa, hi, hello there. Watch buddy. out, man. Why are you laughing? The hackers are dropping. So I, I think I think part of the the thing uh, thing about it is it, it goes back to our core message in this show, and that is about the truth. Yeah, and also, you know, to me, it's like. It's sort of like one of those topics that once you learn more about it starts it starts sort of uh, it's not to use not to use the wrong term but it sort of starts, starts to red pill you a little bit. Well, you look at the 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 spun the spin that that cannabis got in the '60s and things yeah. that happened oh, before yeah. that we were born and before then, yeah. right? And you know we still see it today, and and that's why I think the the high note is is still important. Also, I'll say this: I think it's pe- back I, I think it's picked first. up a new importance too with the opioid crisis because I feel like uh, cannabis could be sort of a way Way out of taking the opioids that people get really, really wrapped up in that destroy their lives. And so it's within that context that we start the high note. 
From marijuana now to opioids. Abuse of opioids is blamed for a second straight year of decreased life expectancy in the United States. Yeah, the entire United States. Correspondent Ellison Barber looks at the numbers tonight. This is occurring across the country. It doesn't matter. Black, white, rich, poor. This epidemic does not discriminate. Three weeks ago in a northern Virginia county 22 miles away from the heart of D.C., Five people died from opioid overdoses in a single week. The victims ranged in age from 22 to 34 years old. It was a deadly week in Fairfax County, but only a small part of a much bigger drug problem. In 2016, the Centers for Disease Control says the life expectancy at birth was 78.6 years. That's down 0.1 percent from 2015. The life expectancy rate dropped last year as well. What's contributing to it is perhaps more concerning than the number itself. Officials say drugs, opioids in particular, are a significant factor. Now, here is another thing that's actually so with between just we have all of these just devastating numbers. And what's what you don't know is it's actually worse than the numbers because jails, police departments, at least here in Washington, are turning people away that they can tell are high on heroin or some sort of opioid because they don't need somebody dying while they're in jail. And so they're actually telling them to go home. And so when somebody gets picked up by a cop because they're, like, freaking out, they bring them down there for processing, and they turn them away. And so they don't even get counted. They never get counted. Um, <laughs> apparently, uh, apparently Chase is uh, making friends with my dog over there. <laughs> he, he likes me a lot. Apparently, dude. Oh, well, he's been uh, sleeping all day. I told I said told Hadia this would be a problem. I said Levi's going to sleep all day, and then we'll do unfiltered, and that's when he's going to be awake for the day. And that's exactly he's what a happened. good guy. He is. He's, he's a been very really good, guy. good. He's a good host, especially especially for still being a puppy. Um, so that's that is the opioid crisis is the context in which I feel like gives the high note a certain level of importance because yeah. there's a lot of data now that's showing that uh, states that have legalized cannabis are seeing a reduction in opioid deaths, which that's huge. We're seeing people that are able to sort of make a transition off of a very very dangerous drug, um, but that doesn't mean that once you legalize everything, it's all good. In fact, California may be facing um, a black market that remains larger than the legal market simply because they're a supplier for the nation. In the foothills of the Sierras below Sequoia National Park, a narcotics task force is preparing for a raid. But they're not going after heroin or cocaine or even meth. They're looking for pot. How many of these grows are protected by weapons themselves? A pretty good portion of them. They're always worried about getting ripped off by people looking to steal their crop. And so we've had a lot of shootings in this county. In January, California will become home to the nation's largest legal pot industry. But the state's black market weed will still be a far bigger business. Hey, Lieutenant, it looks like these are some big ones in here. See a bunch up there. So what do you think? This is probably eight feet tall, right? About that. It's estimated California produces eight times more pot than is consumed here. Most of that is trafficked across America. And today could be up to 80% of the black market weed consumed in the U.S. This is not a group of people growing marijuana for recreational use for themselves. Or even uh, with a medical card. No, this is uh, typical of organized crime. So they're losing a lot of money today. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Somebody's not going to be happy about this. 
So we have to get it out of here, just wrap it up pile by pile and manually drag it out. 50 or 60 pounds of weed on your back. And they got a lot more to pick up still. Raids like this one will continue after full legalization because illegal growers are still cashing in. Jacob Soberoff, NBC News, Squaw Valley, California. So, because they're, you know, they got the they got the supplies, they got the good sunshine. They're the like they're the hookup. Well, yeah, I mean, you got a natural greenhouse going <laughs> on. So, uh, your good buddy, my friend, Jeff Sessions, ah, uh, Jeff, changed a few policies that, um, well, a few people noticed. A few people noticed. Attorney General Jeff Sessions pushing back on states legalizing marijuana. Recreational pot now legal in eight states and the District of Columbia. Another 22 states allow only medical marijuana and 15 allow a lesser medical marijuana extract. But this week, Sessions sent a memo to U.S. attorneys. He reminded that federal law prohibits the possession and sale of marijuana. This effectively repeals the 2013 Obama administration policy that refrained from prosecuting individuals if they're complying with their state's marijuana laws. So what does this mean for the future of legalization? Well, my next guest has a strong opinion. He says, fire Jeff Sessions. You know Ron Paul. (laughs) Ron Paul's is fire. And I agree with Ron Paul. But Ron Paul could be working an angle. Get rid of Sessions, then you can get rid of Mueller. You can get rid of the investigation. I'm sorry, it's a conspiracy, I tell you. Oh, yeah. Jeez, jeez. Sessions is a real piece of work, and you know well, it. Oh, well, he needs to go, irregardless. Yeah. I know that's not a word, right? Irregardless. Uh, Washington, though, is uh, holding strong. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Uh, they're moving ahead on a few things that I think are pretty interesting. But in the meantime, what's Donald Trump think about Jeff Sessions uh, making these policy changes? Because if you remember, Trump campaigned on it's a state's rights issue, yeah, yeah, which is pretty rights. much my, my feelings on it as well. I want to drill down on a couple of Colorado issues. So Chris Christie was one of the first sort of establishment guys to really like jump in with both feet for you. Um, he gets talked about as a possible AG pick, but he was also the only presidential candidate who was campaigning saying he would use federal authority to shut down sales of recreational marijuana in states like Colorado. Yeah, I wouldn't do that, no. You wouldn't let him? No. If you, even if you picked him as well, AG? I don't know. I mean, you're asking me. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, no. Yeah. So you think Colorado should be able to do what it's doing? No, I think it's up to the states. Yeah, I'm a states person. I think it should be up to the states. Absolutely. So he's still he's still maintaining, even in recent interviews, that it's a states' rights issue. It, it should be. I mean, it, it's one of those things where we've already proven. I mean, it's it's a schedule one, which means it's it's more potent, potent and and worse than cocaine because I believe what cocaine's a schedule two, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's so weird about it to me, Chase, is you have that like, so that's, that's the one, that's the one polar extreme. Yeah. And on the other end, you have states where it's recreational, like Colorado and now our state where it's like, not only can you go buy it and you can have it in candies and you can have it in drinks and you can have it in, uh, you know, the, 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 the pre-roll joints and whatnot, but, uh, Yeah, you know what? Why not grow it at home, too? Our state's Liquor and Cannabis Board hopes to make it legal this year to grow pot in your own home. The board has recommended legislation that would allow Washington state residents to grow four cannabis plants at home. Washington is the only state with legal recreational marijuana that does not allow recreational But What she doesn't tell you is if you want to grow, you have to be on another registry. And they want to track your plants from oh, cradle yeah. to grave. Yeah, that's a future story. And that's a, for tri- a future triplicate. Show. And but it is interesting. Yeah. While so while while Jeff Sessions is making his policy changes, his rule changes. Yeah. At the same time, states like Washington and California 
are pushing forward. They're expanding their programs. I, I predict maybe in 50 years uh, we're going to have a break off and it's going to be a new country, the whole West Coast, right? That'd be, that'd be really interesting. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> That's a major long-term Red Book Yeah, if prediction. that happens, yeah. we'll report it here first. That's right. Probably won't be in 265. No. So, Chris, what have you been up to huh? the past couple of weeks? Actually, any, any kind of stuff? I got something to plug. Uh, go check out TechSnap.Systems, the what? new TechSnap program. Wes and I have rebooted it. It's lean. It's mean. It's better than ever. And we're about to do a hell of an episode on Meltdown and Spectre. TechSnap.Systems. Nice. Go check that out. What about you, Mr. Chase? Is there uh, anything you want to plug? Well, Maybe hey, more you Chase know, throughout the week? The Discord is moving along well. Discord.gg slash TV. Doing a lot of geeky and gaming stuff happening oh. over there. Gaming with the community. Oh. And I've been kind of flirting around with some sort of, I don't know, maybe a Linux gaming show. I think there needs to be a different kind of niche from a Windows gamer perspective, trying to get into the open source area. I think that might be a, Cur- a plan. I'd be curious to see that. Check yeah. that out. And also check out the real Discord. Newness. And the real newness oh, on yeah. Twitter. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> real newness one. And Yeah. Yes. All right. Go Fair ahead and do that. Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. Go ahead. What about you? What about you, man? Uh, I, I got I got discord.me slash Jupiter Colony. That's a great one. Where there's an unfiltered chat room. You can go there and get that. You can follow me on the Twitter at Chris LAS. You can follow the network at Jupiter Signal. And you can join us live and get our live time at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And that live stream is at jblive.tv. Thank you for being here. If you'd like to stick around and get a little more, there is a huge overtime coming up. Otherwise, your meat and potatoes is done. We'll see you back here next, next week. that with an answer. Oh, I will. The show's not over yet. It's time for our time! in my time. Thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash unfilter for making this show possible. Man. A big thank you to everybody who showed up when the Patreon times got rough. Double down on your pledges. You might not be new patrons, so you're not necessarily getting a call out, but we recognize you. Big thank you. I appreciate that. Patreon.com slash unfilter. This segment is brought to you by our patrons. You guys made this possible, so we're dedicating this to you. Big thank you to T, Jacob, Joshua, Santa Claus, Tim, C, Jamie, Kyle, Andrew, Matthew, Computer Dude, Scott, and Jared R.W. Our new patrons this week. This segment's dedicated to you and all of our future patrons. Computer Dash Dude, huh? Man, that's an interesting patron name, I gotta say. Well, Santa Claus probably wins. I'm wondering if you signed up just to give us, like, a holiday patron. I'm gonna believe that. When your Patreon username is Santa Claus, I'm gonna believe that's you signed up just as a holiday gift. And uh, sorry to KJL or Kyle for mispronouncing your name. I love you anyways. 
It's just what I do. Now, speaking of mispronunciations, I can really connect and understand my lady, my friend, my good pal, Nancy Pelosi, your friend, too. When uh, she stutters, when she mispronunciates, it's um, it's a little bit bigger of a deal, though. She's not a podcaster. You see, she's the face of the Democratic Party, especially of the establishment Democratic Party. And I propose a thought experiment to you, dear listener, for a moment. Consider what if just I know long shot, but just consider like this Russia stuff doesn't stick to Trump. Somehow the Republicans pull it out before 2018 midterm elections because <laughs> it's 2018. Holy shit. Um, before 2020, let's go back and say that because you just you just got to work with this thought experiment for a second. So let's say the Republicans pull out of this Russia stuff clearly by 2020. Nothing sticks to Trump. My theory is that if Trump comes clean from this Russia stuff, it actually gives him a considerable amount of political capital. It's going to be really good for Donald Trump. Okay, so let's just, you know, create this thought theory for for a moment. Just we we are now within a thought technology. We exist within a temporary reality which we are co-creating. And in such, none of this stuff has stuck to Don Jr. or or Donald Trump. They're, they're pretty much the core Trump team as it stands today remains intact. And the Russia stuff doesn't stick to them. Imagine a scenario where that happens. Now, in this scenario, the pressure on the on the top of the Democratic Party becomes crushingly heavier. It's just a massive amount of weight. And now the flaws of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, which we are about to get into, and of course, my favorite, Maxine Waters. Reclaiming my time. These flaws will have the gravity of the entire world on top of them if this Russia stuff doesn't hold up. This is... This is a weak link, and I present you piece one. Today the House will decide whether we have a government for the people of the, or a government only for the privileged amount of money. I'm sorry, what? See, she, here she – this is the big public democratic response to the tax plan that passed. It's done. It's over. They won. They were completely – this is from weeks ago. They were completely impotent in stopping it. Today, the House will decide whether we have a government for the people of the, or a government only for the privileged the amount of money. It, it sucks up to the higher income and the impact on our future deficits. Yeah, the higher income like you. Um, imagine a scenario where all of this Russia stuff, the cloud of Russia has been removed from political discourse. These flaws become so much more pronounced. It's disgusting, smash and grab. It's disgusting. The geotax scam will go down as, again, one of the most scandalous acts of plutocracy in our history. Today we're bringing the voices of the American people, the voices of children, families, and faith healers, faith leaders, <laughs> healers too, to the doorsteps. of. We may need some faith healers. <laughs> we'll need faith healers, won't we, Audie? <laughs> You see, the thing is, um, is they also when they proclaim absolute doom and gloom, she in there says this is going to be historically known. Like history is going to look back at this tax plan as uh, as an evil do an evil act against the American people. That's hyperbole, and people can tell that. A lot of people in the middle class, the people that the Democrats supposedly represent, are going to save money, especially those of us who will no longer be penalized for not having health insurance. Um, it's not good. It's not. It's not good government. 
but there is money being saved there, and that really influences people. Uh, and and Pelosi really is, should be sort of what the best that the party has to offer. She should be. All of them at that level should be the best. They professionally should be polished. They should be deal makers. They should be people that reach across the aisle and get work done. When the public looks at Nancy Pelosi, ideally, they think somebody who gets it done, somebody who doesn't confuse the current president for the last Republican president. They want somebody who's just getting the people's work done. That's what they truly want. I know it's naive. I know it's 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 quaint, but that's what they want. But instead, what they get is a partisan hack. Yes, sir. Madam Leader, uh, question on, I mean, you, you touched on this a little bit in your opening on, on, on the past year and whatnot. How would you characterize your relationship with the president right now and amid the ebbs and flows? Um, you know, obviously you guys have negotiated various deals, but I mean, how would you characterize it after a year? So for you audio listeners, she's just grinning right now. <laughs> well, I don't think we've accomplished much together. Well, there she goes right there. Starting off, it seems like it's a Trump. It seems like a Trump slam, but in reality, it's a Nancy Pelosi slam. Especially when you take into context how easy Trump can be to roll if you just work with him. Uh, I think we have a good rapport. I don't think we've accomplished much together. Uh, we thought we had, and I think we still do have uh, uh, a, a, an approach to. Uh, uh, he likes to call it DACA. It's DACA, like that with his hand, DACA. <laughs> <laughs> She looks like a skeleton. Moving on from Nancy Pelosi, I want to talk about Chuck Schumer. He had what I think was my favorite moment in politics this week. He had a little bit of a stage moment. He got real upset about something and uh, made a little hay out of it. Shortly after noon, Christina Dave. All right, a long night for Phil Mattingly. Thanks, Phil. Democratic frustration boiling over leading up to that vote. Minority leader Chuck Schumer uh, pausing his closing arguments to scold Republicans oh. talking during his remarks. Nearly 145 million middle-class families under 200,000 will either get tax hikes. Can we have order, Mr. President? Mr. President. Can we have order, Mr. President? Mr. President. Have order, Mr. President. It's one of my uh, local state representatives sitting back there looking like a sack of worthless crap. President. The Senate will be in order. He kind of looks kind of amused by it. This is serious stuff. Oh, and then Chuck starts laying it on. And in his attempt to make it sound like he's, he's sincere, you can tell he only, this is serious stuff. He says it in a way where you can tell it's, he's not sincere. Stuff. Serious stuff. This is serious stuff. Yeah. Um, you're not selling me with that. Then it will be in order. This is serious stuff. We believe you're messing up America. You could pay attention for a couple of minutes. Oh, <laughs> scolding indeed. No shortage of reaction after the vote, including. That was my favorite moment in politics, though, this week. Uh, I was I just I like I just the whole thing from the way Mr. President and to the this is serious stuff. Can we have order, Mr. President? <laughs> oh, the Senate man. will be in order. I mean, this is like it's not like he's not like a six or seven year old kid, you know? <laughs> and then, and then he like doubles down. This is serious stuff. Oh yeah, you sound so. You sound really serious. We believe you're messing up America. You could pay attention for a couple of minutes. 
Secrets and MSNBC. Just ate that up. Of course, I did too, didn't I? Now, uh, speaking of MSNBC, uh, you know Diane Feinstein, g- your good friend, um, your good buddy from California, Diane Feinstein. You know she released that uh, whole transcript of the uh, Fusion GPS owner's uh, interview. Now, that um, that is – it's not that big of a deal. It's 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 out of decorum, but it is not that big of a deal. Lawrence O'Donnell, though, on MSNBC will suck dick for minutes long over something that's not that big of a deal. It was sort of a partisan act. But MSNBC will recast what is a rather partisan, unproductive act as a true historical moment that only comes once in a generation. So I, I present this to you so you can see how one side casts the actions, which objectively are partisan and nonproductive. But they can create a narrative around these actions and they can take an evil, corrupt 84-year-old woman who shouldn't be in government anymore and they can make her a liberal hero, even though she is, by all objectionable measurements, about as right as they come on the left. This is Lawrence O'Donnell respinning history. What Dianne Feinstein did today was the single most important act by a United States senator since Donald Trump took the oath of office. Nothing less than that. <laughs> okay, first of all, wow. Wow. What about Devin Nunes running to the White House with uh, – classified information what about that that seems like that was kind of a big moment doesn't it what about lindsey graham becoming going from a trump attacker to a trump supporter and helping play interference on the judicial committee that seems like a pretty big development since trump became president but lawrence here no 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 just diane feinstein releasing the transcript uh this is big also just take note how long it takes old lawrence here to tell you what she actually did He's such a CTs, it's ridiculous. He's so busy sucking Diane Feinstein's D that he can't actually even tell you what he did because they love themselves so much that they have to build the anticipation. They have to build the narrative. They're teasing you. Senator Feinstein reached the breaking point with her Republican colleagues on the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was her Howard Beale moment, that moment in Patty Shievsky's Oscar-winning screenplay network when Howard Beale starts shouting, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, and the whole country starts shouting with him. There is nothing more rare in the United States Senate than the Howard Beale moment. They happen once in a generation, if that. What's great about what he's doing here is he's creating his own yardstick measurement, a fantasy scene from a movie, and he's then using that as the benchmark in which to measure this historical achievement, which is his own creation and is arbitrarily being applied by him. And so it can be completely thrown around as a factual statement because it's his opinion. The last one, as I said to Rachel, the last one that comes to mind for me is from 1984 when Daniel Patrick Moynihan announced his resignation from the vice chairmanship of the Senate Intelligence Committee because the CIA director had violated his obligation to fully and openly brief the committee, privately brief the committee, on the mining of the harbors in in Nicaragua before going ahead and mining those harbors. 
The Republican chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee then, Barry Goldwater, was as outraged as his Democratic colleague, Senator Moynihan. And he, too, sharply criticized the CIA for that. Filibusters are common. Unbelievable. That is nothing like what happened. That is nothing like what happened. That is not comparable in any single way to what Dianne Feinstein did. But that is his justification. So then he goes on to a tyrant about filibusters. Why are we watching this? I want to remind you why I'm making you watch this, because I understand for some of you this is painful as hell. The reason I'm making you watch this is because I'm demonstrating to you how narrative is built around these these political actors in the Senate. Dianne Feinstein is a succubus. She's a corrupt succubus. Go look into her background. She's she's the worst. She's she, people tell me. I hear from people all the time. She's the worst. Um, okay, I still I got. Anyways, he is building this luxurious, beautiful nest-like narrative around Diane Feinstein that is completely bullshit. And to demonstrate to underscore his point, he's going to talk about how we all we all think we know what filibusters are. But let me tell you this. They're just political theater, as if what Diane did today wasn't political theater. Only mistaken by the press to be Howard Beale moments. They are not. No, not filibusters. No, no. They are perfectly normal and traditional and very rare uses of the Senate rules and procedures to prolong debate. That's all they are. Now, notice he actually hasn't told you yet what she's done. You know, because I've said it, but. We are well into this clip now. He's so busy building you this beautiful narrative and bringing you along a story line that just will underscore all of his points that he hasn't even told you what she's done yet. What Senator Moynihan did in 1984 and what Senator Feinstein did today was a break with Senate norms (gasps) and traditions. Of course, Senator Feinstein was loath to do. Of course, when Donald Trump breaks from norms and traditions, that's horrible. In her 25 years in the United States Senate, Dianne Feinstein has mastered the norms and the traditions and the rules of committee procedure and Senate procedure and Senate decorum and respect for her colleagues. Some say she has mastered all of that to a fault, to the point of being too deferential to process and traditions. And yeah, she's ineffective. She's essentially a right wing kook in a left wing cape. And this is how she gets away with it. Oh, oh, you know, she's just she just really respects the process. So she can't move forward on any progressive issue because it violates the process. This is this is backfilling narrative here. Too deferential to her colleagues, especially her Republican colleagues. Audio listeners in quotes behind him, in all caps, in scare quotes, they have crime in progress. I was working in the United States Senate when Dianne Feinstein was first sworn in as a senator. In my experience, working with her in the Senate and watching her work as a senator ever since, I could think of no one, and I mean no one, on the Democratic side of the Senate less likely to have a Howard Beale moment than Dianne Feinstein. See, this Howard Beale moment that he's created as his benchmark is his narrative around avoiding telling you what it is, because he can just refer to the Howard Beale moment. He doesn't have to say what that is. He can just refer to that moment over and over again to build the anticipation. He's attempting poorly to play to your emotions. 
But in her years in the Senate, especially her last few years in the Senate, the Obama years, and now, worst of all, the Trump year. Worst. She has watched Senate tradition, Senate decorum, Senate respect for process, not to mention senatorial integrity, virtually collapse with Republican senators like Lindsey Graham on the Judiciary Committee, who went from trying to expose Donald Trump as a fraud and a charlatan during the presidential campaign to now running interference for him on the Judiciary Committee and trying to steer the Judiciary Judiciary Committee's investigation of Russian interference in our election away from Donald Trump. Trump and the Trump campaign and toward one of the people who believed it was his duty to alert the FBI to what he had discovered about that Russian interference. Christopher Steele, the former British intelligence agent who had written memos now called a dossier on Donald Trump's Russian connections for Fusion GPS. Today, Senator Feinstein decided to release the finally, finally. He's telling you what she did after all of that. And he's celebrating. He's celebrating the fact that she broke decorum, that she is going against the norm, that she's doing the things she's not supposed to do politically, that she is creating a dynamic now that is no longer this um, at least front of cooperation. She's creating a dynamic now that breaks that front. And he's celebrating it. He's, he's, he has waxed on now for four minutes about how incredible this is. And he still took him four minutes to tell you what it was, but he waxed and waxed and even created an artificial benchmark in which to measure it for enti- against an entire generation to tell you how great it was that she broke decorum and went against political norm. But God fucking forbid for one moment Donald Trump do that because Lawrence O'Donnell will be all over his ass. 312-page transcript of testimony about that dossier that the Republican chairman of the committee, Chuck Grassley, was refusing to release. Now, normally, testimony given to the committee privately behind closed doors would only be released as a result of an agreement by the chairman of the committee and the ranking member. But Dianne Feinstein violated that tradition and just released it herself. Ranking member is a term that has absolutely no meaning. So does Lawrence O'Donnell. (laughs) Yeah. All right, moving on. I just wanted to build that for you a little bit, just so you can kind of see how this works. You see, you could look at it as she's a partisan who's creating a horrible poison situation now, and now it's going to be an outright right-left battle in this what was otherwise supposedly a cooperative investigation. You could could spin it that way. You could spin it as this incredible once-in-a-lifetime moment. It just depends on which universe you want to tune into. Let's follow up a little more on Donald Trump, Michael Wolff, and uh, specifically Michael Wolff, the, Wolf, the author of Fire and Fury, his access to the White House. Michael Wolff, the author of Fire and Fury inside the Trump White House, is with us this morning. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I thought it would be interesting for you to actually see him in an interview. So I'm going to try not to interrupt it so you can kind of take in the full context, watch his body language, listen to his body language, etc. Whatever you do, I don't I don't judge and just get a sense of the man. A lot has happened since details of your book just came out. Uh, The president, to to say the least, to say the least, the president in response has felt the need to describe himself as a stable genius. 
based on your reporting, are there people inside the White House talking about trying to remove him from office? They're not talking about trying to remove him from office. They're wondering what's going to happen. The people in the White House are like everybody else in the country. What's going to happen here? We don't know from day to day. This is... um, um, this is for them, as for everyone, an extraordinary experience. And, um, and I think that they certainly question what's going to happen here, like everybody else. There are many moments in which the 25th Amendment has come up, the 25th Amendment in which, which gives the cabinet the ability to remove the president. And they don't say, they don't say uh, the, the cabinet is going to remove the president, but they do say things, things like, this is, well, this is a little 25th Amendment here. Uh, well, it's interesting because you say that Bannon was going around the White House saying that there was a 33 percent chance that the president would be in- impeached, a 33 percent chance that he would resign under threat of the 25th Amendment, correct? Right. And a 33 and a third percent chance that he would limp to the finish line, but a zero percent chance that he would have another term. President Trump yesterday uh, said the book is a fake book. He said you are totally discredited as an author. Is everything in the book true? Everything in the book is true. And your response to that? Um, well, I'm, I'm waiting for a nickname. You don't have one? I, I seem, <laughs> you don't yeah, have one yet. I seem to have been, where, where's, where's my nickname? Well, he did call it a work of fiction. Stephen Miller continued that narrative over the weekend. There had been reports I that can, you... I can reliably say Donald Trump has never read a work of fiction. So, um... One person who appears on almost every page of this book is Hope Hicks. In terms of what she saw and what she was aware of and participated in, how big of, a, of an impact would she have in the Mueller investigation if, in fact, she did cooperate with him? And how worried should the president be? I, I, I think huge hope is at the center of this administration. I mean, one of the I mean, she's really one of the curious figures. She really begins as something like an intern in the um, um, or a very low level um, person in the campaign. And she actually she worked has, for Ivanka Trump beforehand. That's what she was, Ivanka Trump. Right. She, she was a, a fashion PR person. Um, and, um, and then she was seconded to the campaign and she became very close to um, uh, the candidate and then very close to the president of the United States. And now, for all intent and purpose, she is the president's senior most advisor. Mm-hmm. Did you speak with any members of the president's cabinet for this book? I did not. You did not? I did not. And did you speak with the vice president? I did not. When was the last time you spoke with the president for this book? You know, as I've said all along here, and the, and the, and the, and the White House seems very focused on, on, on this, and it's, I've spent about three hours talking to the president over the course of the, of, of the campaign, the transition, and in the White House. But the... Um, the, the, the important point I want to make is that this book is not about my impression of the president. I, I came into this with no agenda. I continue to have no political fair agenda. Fair enough, fair enough. But it this, reads like a running narrative. Like, as you say, you were a semi-permanent spot. You were a fly on the wall in the White House. But exactly. it does also read like your main source is Steve Bannon. Would it be correct to sort of say that? It would be not correct. He's a very large source here. 
but there are many, many, many. You, uh, two, there are, you have there written, are, there but you have, written, you have written it's worse when, than you when thought. I, it's worse I, than uh, anybody thought that he's mentally unstable, that he's that he's an idiot. Okay, I, mean, I didn't say, this isn't, I did not say he's mentally unstable. I would not be qualified to do this. I'd say I have merely described, and mostly not not my impressions, the impressions of other people, of the people he deals with But the with president denies he basis. ever spoke with you for this book at all. Well, I, I think he probably had no idea he was speaking to me for this book. When I would meet the president in, in the White House, we would, we would chat as though we were friends. Um, and, and that was what... But that's what, not that an was, interview to greet someone and say hello. I mean, that's not a, that's not a journalistic exercise. Yeah, you said three hours. Hello. You'd spend three hours with Well, I, uh, through the course... Of, first, I have sat down with the president for uh, an extended, extended periods of, of interviews. But there's other periods in which, in which, and that's essentially what he's saying. They're tr- they're trying to parse this, and saying, "Oh, I didn't know that I was speaking to him when I saw him in the White House." Uh, as an as an just interview. to clarify, the White House says the last time they have a record of you meeting with President Trump was February 2017. That's just barely a hundred days into his presidency. Did you interview him after that date? Did uh, let's let's separate this out. I interviewed him at that point. After that, we would we would we would speak. I'm sure he didn't think they were interviews. And and in all fairness, he might say I was not being interviewed. How much do you think things have changed since John Kelly became chief of staff? So I'd like to know what you think of him. Uh, what, what's your assessment of him? Let me know in the comments where you're watching this or in the discord room or you can even go in the discord room after the show is off the air. And uh, let me know. I discord.me slash Jupiter Colony. Look for unfiltering there. I'd like to know your thoughts on him. Just, I guess, your gut read. Let me know right now if you're watching live in the Discord what your gut read is on Michael Wolf, um, because I'm still working on my gut read. And the reason why I ask is because there's so much in the book where you have to rely on, on him. Let's talk a little more about Steve Bannon, fallout from this book. You've got this miracle. You don't think that that's going to resonate when you say he's created this kind of Oprah thing to set up to run against him in 2020 uh, because of just his tweets. Or This is uh, Steve Bannon today still or no uh, yesterday. Sorry. Still trying to dig out with Donald Trump, essentially. And this is on uh, Sirius XM. Or maybe his the way he comports himself isn't his actions whether it's in destroying ISIS in the Middle East or rebuilding the economy here and, and unlocking the animal spirits of the American people. Oh. Don't you think those actions go a lot farther than uh, than your quiet professionalism? Well, the groveling didn't work. Steve Bannon is out of a job tonight. Two jobs, in fact. He has stepped down as executive chairman of Breitbart News and will no longer host the Breitbart radio show on Sirius XM. Bannon attacked Donald Trump's family in the new book, Fire and Fury, going after Ivanka and Donald Jr. and angering the president in the process. After the book came out, Trump said Bannon had, quote, lost his mind and said his one-time campaign chief executive and fired chief strategist, quote, has nothing to do with me or my presidency. I just actually thought the the fact that uh, he'd also lost his serious XM gig, which was actually tied to Breitbart, is like Breitbart Radio, kind of makes sense. So I, I follow uh, all the different news networks, as you guys are very well aware of at this point, and um, it's unquestionable that the evening lineup on Fox News is very, very pro-Trump, especially Hannity. And so if the book is the main topic on every single news network in existence except for Fox News, 
Fox News might be talking about – well, you know, here, let's go take a – I'll actually – let me go – hold on. Give me – if uh, if you will give me uh, one moment, uh, I'll actually go give you the uh, the actual – the actual um, – I got my clip list here. Let me go look. Let's go take a little look. I'll give, an, I'll give you an actual read of the things Fox News was covering during the height of the book. So uh, over here um, – let me resort real quick because this is a lot of clips. We so we we have so many more clips on here than we actually ever put on the air. So <laughs> it's pretty nuts. Uh, all right. So when the book was the uh, hot topic of the day, um, the Fox News Channel was was covering Trump responds to Oprah running against him. Kellyanne Conway talks immigration battle and DACA. Uh, Fire Google employee speaks out on lawsuit, which uh, almost made it on the show. Uh, where are Trump's negotiation skills? We'll come back to that because that's the one that stands out. Would amnesty deal betray voters? Um, and then it goes on with a lot of basically immigration stuff. Fox really focused on immigration during the everybody else while they're talking about this book, except for Tucker Carlson. You heard that one in there. Where were Trump's negotiation skills? It sort of just slipped in there amongst all these other things like Kellyanne Conway coming on and Hannity waxing on about how great Trump is. Or can Trump strike a bipartisan deal with Brett Baer and all of these debates about immigration and DACA and how great Trump's going to do is the main headline except for one. And it's Cucker Tuckerson. And Cucker Tuckerson says... Where are Donald Trump's supposed negotiation skills? Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. You got to wonder if uh, after this episode right here, if the uh, we shouldn't start some sort of betting pool on when uh, Cucker's going to get fired from Fox News. It was a weird scene in Washington today. President Trump, you'll remember, ran for office promising to fix immigration, make good deals and in general do a better job. And the corrupt, incompetent lawmakers, he said, were wrecking the country. And he was right. They were wrecking the country. And yet today, in a remarkable twist, the president held a televised meeting with the very swamp creatures he once denounced. He told them he trusted them to craft immigration policy without his input. Then he suggested he'd be willing to accept any deal they produced, even a bad one. When this group comes back, hopefully with an agreement, this group and others from the Senate, from the House, comes back with an agreement, I'm signing it. I mean, I will be signing it. I'm not going to say, oh, gee, I want this or I want that. I'll be signing it because I have a lot of confidence in the people in this room that you're going to come up with something really good. At one point, the president agreed with Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California that it would be wise to handle the question of DACA separately before negotiating any meaningful reform of our broken and dysfunctional immigration system. And I don't know how you would feel about this, but I'd like to ask the question, what about a clean DACA bill now and with a commitment that we go into? A- I, let's, let's parse this a little bit because this is so fascinating. Clean. A clean DACA bill. A clean DACA bill. Now, if I were just to break it down, I would I would interpret that as something that's just addressing DACA. But the beautiful thing about politicians is they all get to pretend like they have different interpretations of basic fundamental words. So clean to another politician might mean DACA and a wall. 
And so you can say, well, when I say clean, I mean DACA and the wall. Of course, you don't say wall. You say security. Security is shorthand for wall because we live in 1984, apparently. What about a clean DACA bill now and with a commitment that we go into a comprehensive immigration reform procedure like we did back, oh, I remember when Kennedy was here. and It was really... Dianne Feinstein was born in 1933. A major, major effort, and uh, it was a great disappointment. I feel like her reference of Kennedy is, is an attempt to, I don't know, somehow impress Donald Trump. And I think it works. I think she manages to impress him. And with a commitment that we go into a comprehensive immigration reform procedure like we did back, oh, I remember when Kennedy was here. And it was really a major, major effort. And uh, A commitment to go into comprehensive immigration reform. Every single one of those words has a different interpretation by different politicians. Comprehensive is, is the, probably the most disputable word. It probably means the most widest range of things. Comprehensive can mean everything from security, which means the wall, to uh, massive, massive economic restructuring. But even the word reform is interpretable. So the entire sentence, she says, we commit to essentially vagary. That we go into a comprehensive immigration reform procedure like we did back, oh, I remember when Kennedy was here. And it was really a major, major effort, and uh, it was a great disappointment that it went nowhere. No- yeah, let's do it. Let's do something like we did with Kennedy, because, again, I was born in 1933. Uh, that actually was fr- fruitless and uh, went nowhere. But I name-dropped Kennedy. Nowhere. Uh, I have no problem. I, I think that's basically what Dick is saying. We're going to come out with DACA. We're going to do DACA, and then we can start immediately on the phase two, which would be comprehensive. Would be yeah, I would like. I would like to. Do that. Key allies very close to the president on immigration told us this afternoon they were shocked by what they saw in that meeting. It was a completely different Donald Trump from the one we watched on the campaign trail just two years ago. How different? Let's put it this way. Trump's rival from the 2016 race, Jeb Bush, who was on the far left of Republican sentiment on immigration questions, tweeted these words in response to the meeting, quote, encouraged the president is seeking bipartisan solutions to our immigration challenges. In 2016, Donald Trump ran on the premise that America's borders ought to be real, that the repeated amnesties of the past have betrayed voters and that this country deserves an immigration policy that looks out for American interests rather than those of foreign countries. Almost nobody in Washington agreed with him at the time. Almost nobody in Washington agrees with him now. Congress is full of people from both parties who believe that the point of our immigration policy is to provide cheap labor to their donors and to atone for America's imaginary sins against the world. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, can you believe he's he's going this hard against Trump on Fox? Like, remember, this is this is like primetime Fox. Like Trump watches this. They couldn't care less about immigration's effect on you or your family. Yet these are the same people the president now says he trusts to write the immigration bill, the one he'll sign no matter what it says. So what was the point of running for president? You remember the president also ran on his skills as a negotiator, and he clearly has skills as a negotiator. Where were they today? The president signaled he'd be happy to legalize hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants now, 
and then at some point in the future tackle all that other stuff, like making sure they can't bring millions of their relatives from the third world along with them. That's not much of a negotiation. <laughs> Amnesty for DACA recipients is the only leverage the White House has. Exactly. Once the president agrees to let them jump to the head of the line, ahead of millions of other people hoping to come here legally, the negotiation is over. At that point, why would Democrats agree to anything? They won't. Ending chain migration, the diversity lottery, supporting a merit-based system that might actually help America? No chance. The Democrats' goal is to import more Democratic voters and by any means necessary. Once they retake the Congress <laughs> and the presidency, and if Trump betrays his base in immigration, that'll definitely happen. Yeah. It is over. Say goodbye to borders. They are done. Keep in mind that the top Democrat in the House recently thanked illegal aliens for sneaking into this country. That's how Democrats feel, and they're not pretending anymore. Being a Trump voter isn't always easy. It's like rooting for the underdog in baseball, the old Chicago Cubs. On one level, there is pride, the pride that comes from doing something that fashionable people consider insane. And that's a good feeling. But there's also some disappointment along the way. And honestly, there's some embarrassment. But you silently bear it because you know that when they finally win the World Series, it'll be worth everything you went through. Every sarcastic dig from your brother-in-law at Thanksgiving will seem small what? by comparison. What? In the Trump presidency, the World Series is this immigration bill. It's the big payoff. It's the whole point of the exercise. And they're not allowed to blow it. I agree. And uh, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know. He's, yeah, uh, woo. I don't know what he's doing. We got to pick it up, though. We got we to gotta keep moving. We got to, I, I want to shift gears and just talk briefly about a about some conspiracy bacon that's out there that seems like it might actually be legit and this is going to be controversial and i'm not really taking a position on this i know that's probably the most chicken shit thing i could way i could set this clip up but um so it looks like a clinton backer set aside five hundred thousand dollars to fund trump sexual harassment accusers now, the the donor who set aside this $500,000 says that, oh, no, 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 I'm not paying them. I'm providing services for them because the world's full of white Nazis and I don't want them to be attacked. So I have to buy them houses and I have to give them food and I have to hire them body persons. Um, but I'm not paying them to attack Trump. At all. all right, here to discuss those questions brought up by Kevin and more, Beverly Hallberg with the Heritage Foundation and former Missouri Congressman Don Calloway. Great to have you both. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> okay, I want to start with uh, Linda Bloom, who is one of the attorneys uh, here that we're talking about. And um, excuse me, Lisa, this is what she has to say in The New York Times. She said it doesn't cost anything to publicly air allegations. Security and relocation are expensive and were sorely needed in a case of this magnitude in a country filled with so much anger, hate and violence. Beverly, she has said this is about protecting these women if they decided to come forward and I, not paying them to manufacture something. I think in many ways it's damaging to them. If these claims are true, if they're proven true, of course they're extremely concerning. But when you have someone saying, I'll pay you, she even reached out to tabloids saying we can even do some type of interview with them if you want. She was going to get a payout herself to do this. I actually think there is then reason, as you were just reporting, to say, hey, you're getting paid for this. Are these actual allegations um, something that should be pushed against him? And I would say as well... Stop there. I just think that's something just to sit with for a moment and think about. You remember BuzzFeed publishing the complete Trump dossier? CNN ran with a few key parts of it. 
but BuzzFeed went whole hog and published the entire PDF, which we linked to. And last night, um, Trump's personal lawyer uh, said they're going to file a lawsuit against BuzzFeed, Ben Smith, uh, for publishing the dossier. And you have a piece in The New York Times that is entitled, I'm proud we published the Trump-Russia dossier. And in one sentence, you say, I haven't had a single person approach me to say, I wish I hadn't read the dossier and I wish I had less insight into the forces at play in America. That sounds like something Trump would say. But yet when it's when it's agreeable to their narrative... That's totally fine. You've had a lot of people tell you is what she just said. She just she just used the go to joke Trump line. A lot of people tell me she just used that line. She just did that. It's cool. It's cool, though, because this is this is working towards our narrative. It's so it's cool. And Smith um, for publishing the dossier. And you have a piece, the New York Times, that is entitled, I'm proud we published the Trump-Russia dossier. And in one sentence, you say, I haven't had a single person approach me to say, I wish I hadn't read the dossier and I wish I had less insight into the forces at play in America. Do you feel that way? Does anyone? Um, So no, no, uh, absolutely no concerns about publishing it. Any concerns about the lawsuit? Um, you know, I think, first of all, what you've seen, I mean, particularly this week, you have the, the Senate Intelligence Committee spending hours and hours and days and days intensely focused on debating this document. The notion that this document ought to be secret, that we ought not to know what they're debating, that broadly the public should have no insight into this incredibly high-stakes fight happening on Capitol Hill, in which both Republicans and Democrats, for different reasons, are making the case that this dossier is central to kind of what happened over the last couple of years. I agree it should be public. So that way you can see the outlandish claims in there, like hump, tr- hump <laughs> Trump hiring uh, <laughs> hookers to piss on Obama's bed, which is just great, just ridiculous. Um, I've been following Hurricane Harvey. You guys know that, in fact... Uh, I don't know he's not in here, but I, I adopted a dog uh, from Texas that was uh, displaced because of Hurricane Harvey. So I just want to do a quick update on that. The water just kept coming higher and higher and higher. Like yeah. many homeowners in Houston, Val Aldred's home was flooded from Harvey. But Aldred does not blame the hurricane. So you blame this on the federal government, Uh-oh. on the Army Corps of Engineers, for a choice they made. That's exactly right. This Uh-oh. would have never happened because the rain didn't cause this. Aldred says his and dozens of neighbors' homes flooded after the rain from Harvey had stopped. He and some of them are now suing the Army Corps of Engineers. Oh, man. You know how that's going. Of course, insurance companies are getting involved, too. Hoo-wee. All right, let's do a little actual news here. Uh, let's talk about some missile fire. As President Trump announced on October 13th, the United States is taking a new approach to Iran. Oh, when I say missile fire, of course, I mean that Iran is supplying Yemen rebels with missiles. By focusing on all of the regime's destabilizing behavior. At least that's the new claim. In fact, uh, we seem to be getting uh, pretty tough on Iran. And uh, Donald Trump's been making public comments. The whole world's watching Iran right now. On the streets of Iran's capital... Days of public protest reached a boiling point not seen for nearly a decade. Now, those of you who are following the news outside of Unfilter have probably noticed how there's all kinds of protests going on all around the world all the time that the media, especially NBC, never covers. And and then some of these are in like English speaking countries that they just never talk about. So when the media especially the NBC Nightly News, 
is covering protests in Iran, I gotta be honest, it's a red flag. The kindling to this show of anger and desperation is a poor economy with few jobs and rising prices. Brewing unrest that drew the attention of President Trump's Twitter feed. Iranian government should respect their people's rights, including right to express themselves. The world is watching, echoing the president's message delivered at the United Nations. The longest suffering victims of Iran's leaders are, in fact, its own people. The volatile conditions today moved many young people to demonstrate against the government spontaneously. Ah, check the box off on your bingo card if you had young people. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, Iran's biggest protests in nearly a decade have been getting encouragement from its major political rivals, the U.S. and Israel. More on that from Jacqueline Volga. Oh, um, you should probably, you, I, I wonder if maybe Israel should be first in that sentence. What began as discontent over economic hardship and alleged corruption in Iran has evolved into massive nationwide anti- and pro-government demonstrations. Iran's president came out saying citizens have the right to protest as long as it's done peacefully. In recent days, we have witnessed protests. Everyone must be aware of this point that we are a free nation, and according to the Constitution and human rights, the people are absolutely free to criticize the government and even protest. We, the government, will definitely not tolerate some protesters who want to destroy public property or disrupt public discipline and create turmoil in society. Oh! Just ahead of New Year's celebrations, a frightening find. Police in Houston discovering a small arsenal in the hotel room of a man whose security was trying to escort back to his room because they say he was drunk and belligerent at a party. The man telling investigators he brought the AR-15, a shotgun, handgun, and ammo into his room because he didn't want to get them stolen from his truck. Video of the truck right there. While police say they don't believe the 49-year-old man shown here intended to use the guns, they did arrest him for unlawfully carrying a weapon and then also trespassing. While you're laughing, the hackers are dropping malware into your system. I don't know about that. But uh, I do know that CBS Morning News has a new Charlie Rose replacement. Welcome to CBS This Morning. I'm Nora O'Donnell with oh. Gail King. And look who else is here. Oh. What's your name? What your name is? Oh. I'm a transfer student here. <laughs> Welcome to the new school, John yes. Dickerson. Although it's not so new. I love what you said yesterday, or Nora, that it's a, it's a new day. Yeah, I said it's this a is a new beginning with, with an, an old, old friend. friend. God, that's so awkward. You know, if you've been watching it unfilter, you've noticed Nora has really gotten more aggressive since Charlie left, especially if you just watched that last interview we just played in the overtime even. This, though, is this is super awkward because they just got a demotion, basically. These two women just got a demotion. And it's it, the awkward. This is just it's palatable. I don't know. Maybe it's because I've I've worked in video presentation before. I don't know. But this to me is even when people absolute professionals, high end career professionals are put in an awkward situation. It still comes through sometimes. I'm a transfer <laughs> student here. Yeah. Welcome to the new school, John. Yes. Dickerson. Although it's not so new. I love what you said yesterday or 
I love what you said. Um, not you, not the person I'm actually addressing right now. No, my my competition sitting next to me. Yesterday, or Nora, that it's a, it's a new day. Yeah, I said this is a new beginning with with an an old friend. friend. Uh, (laughs) Oh, good. That's going to be awkward and fun to watch. So that'll be an interesting dynamic playing out on the media. Um, Another interesting dynamic is... um, I'm a little cold. I have hot flashes. Oh my gosh, it's Anderson Cooper, everybody! Yeah, it's Anderson Cooper as the co-host for New Year's. Now, Kathy Griffin was going to be, and has been for years, Anderson Cooper's New Year's coverage co-host, but then she had to cut off Donald Trump's head and hold it on a Twitter thing and then freak the fuck out for like the rest of the year. And so they had to go with somebody else. The problem is, they went with somebody who's like a zany gay guy, um, and he just says shit that's awkward well it's about 11 degrees here in times square but it feels like 10 or 9 i'd say i agree yeah actually i'd say i'd I say agree. 10 or 9. how's this heat the going? heat is i is mean surging this part of me feels very hot the rest of me feels very cold so i feel it very unbalanced you sound like you're on heroin or something what is that how does that even sound like know. isn't it like waves of heat or something like that oh, the, oh. yikes yikes this is going off the rails yikes heroin or something what is that how does that even sound like isn't it like waves of- <laughs> what is that how does that even sound like what is that how does that even sound like this part of me feels very hot the rest of me feels very cold so i feel it very unbalanced you sound but- like you're on heroin or something what is that how does that even sound like know. isn't it like waves of heat or something like that? oh so the- oh that's what you're referencing i don't, I don't, I don't know. know anything about it uh, so there is that's the awkward that was replacing Ka- i don't know how i don't know how they made it more awkward but they did uh, and of course, pot came up, which was awkward. Day, and I think she got a little high from just being in the mirror. Well, I mean, I just that wanna... sounds like a fantastic assignment. Wanna... They're talking about their uh, co-anchor, uh, Randy Kale. Show you so... what what happened when she went to the marijuana dispensary okay. last time. Yeah. How much longer are you going to be there for, Randy? You moving there? Or? I think I need to come home. I think I need to come home. <laughs> I think you. <laughs> I'm coming you need home to come tomorrow. Come back to the East Coast. <laughs> Yeah, come back to the East Coast. Do you think they'll know? Thanks very much. (laughs) All right, so so Randy is now uh, in Colorado again. She's, I think, on a bus, like a pot bus. Oh, let's just find out. Randy. It's a uh, dispensary bus? Randy, where are you? We are in uh, Denver, Colorado. Good evening to you guys, Anderson and Andy. We have the party started here. There is a little bit of a purple uh, haze. Oh, we have the party started and there's a purple haze. <laughs> um, we call this magic bus the Kenna bus. Get- oh, get it? get it? Whoa. Whoa, guys, they're smoking on the Kenna bus. This is what I'm dealing with. Oh, it's so crazy. I think that we're going to have a repeat of what you saw in that last live hit. from. At least I'm sure trying because I know that's what the producers want. God, I'm trying, guys. I'm so hard. I'm so trying. <laughs> All those years ago, uh, yeah, it, it's getting pretty crazy, but we made such an impact last It's getting so crazy because there's this really obnoxious guy behind me smoking pot. So it's it's crazy. This time I have to show you this magazine cover. It's the High Times magazine. Look who's on the cover. That's right, me. On the cover of High Times magazine wow. after that experience. Uh, yeah, you know, it was great because I went into the studio and I took that photo shoot, and it took them three months to get it to print, so we had it queued up, and the producer actually told me to queue that um, because, uh, well, I'm just trying to do something because this is really actually pretty boring. I'm sorry, guys. Are you serious? I want to show you what's going on on this bus. <laughs> this 
this is this is some of the uh, some of the fun that we're having. This is Mikey's. Uh, what do you call this? This Mikey? is a Blazy Susan, you guys. And so a Blazy Susan. Like- and so CNN got quite a bit of um, of um, screen time, discussion, controversy, um, scolding. Insert your favorite uh, descriptor there. But a lot of other networks gave CNN a hard time for talking about pot on New Year's and and for uh, crazy Randy. Which uh, I got to tell you, if that's your idea of crazy, then um, <laughs> you got no idea. So let's uh, let's go on to what the, everybody's favorite media moment. This is probably the, one of the number one shared clips from the news from the mainstream media on the Internet for the whole week. It's your good buddy, Jake Tapper. Joining us now is the White House Senior Policy Advisor, Stephen uh, Miller. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us and Happy New Year. Thanks. Good to see you. Good to be here. So President Trump and the White House. So Stephen Miller comes on and Jake Tapper's pretty fired up. He's ready to go. And about, oh, I don't know. Let's, let's, go, let's go 10 minutes into the clip. It's gotten pretty hostile by about 10 minutes. This is uh, 10 minutes into the clip, about 10 minutes, 30 seconds. Not only do I think they help it. But I think in the toxic environment that you've created here in CNN and cable news. Damn. Which is a real crisis of legitimacy for your network. We saw it, of course, with the extremely fake news you reported about the Don Jr. and WikiLeaks story. There was a huge embarrassment for your network. Stephen. Just like the huge embarrassment you had when you got the Comey testimony wrong. Stephen, I'm trying to get to the issue of the president's fitness, which a lot of people well, are Well, I'm getting to the issue of your no, fitness. You're... But the... <laughs> the issue of your fitness, Jake Tapper's not having this. President's, the president's tweets absolutely reaffirmed the plain spoken truth. A self-made billionaire revolutionized reality TV and tap into something magical that's happening in the hearts of this country. So let's fast forward. It just gets more contentious. Jake tries to get him back on topic more. They just start ar- oop, They just start arguing more and more, and it goes kind of like this. And you're, being, you're not going to give three minutes for the American people I to get hear it. the real experience you're, you, of you, Donald you, Trump. There's one viewer that you care about right now, and you're being obsequious. No, you're which, being a factotum no, in order to being, please him, okay? No. And I think, you know, I've you know I, I think I've wasted enough of my you viewers' know who time. I, you know who Thank I you, care Stephen. about? As Republicans, hey, Jake, lawmakers call you know for Attorney General Jeff Sessions to resign. In a major reversal, Democrats are now coming to his defense. What changed? Well, and they cut him off right there. In fact, they actually had to escort him out of the building. Got to escort me out of the building. Thanks for being here. See you next week. Goodbye, everybody. in my time while you're laughing the hackers are dropping now where is the system oh my gosh it's anderson cooper everybody i say boulder dash Fuck the EU. Fuck the EU. Hello, everybody.